Welcome, y'all. I'm Deeg. I'm here today chatting with ArenaNet Studio Narrative Director Tom Abernathy. How's it going, Tom? It's going very well. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I'm so pleased to connect with you. Um, yeah. you so the way that I have the video framed up, only the very top of your shirt. Can you can you give it a little? Let's see that shirt. Script, 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 script. So before I ask you anything, I got to ask you to tell me the story about that shirt. What's the deal? Oh, yeah. So uh, so this is the shirt that I had made for Christmas presents, holiday presents for uh, for the narrative team at ArenaNet in uh, uh, end of the year in 2018. Um, and uh, that was Bobby and I had spent two years kind of building the team uh, up to the, to where we wanted it to be. And we were just really thrilled. Everything was humming on all cylinders and uh, we had a, a full component of, I think it was full complement of, of, I think it was 17 people all told <clears throat> by editors and VO folks. And, uh, and I just felt like we had all worked really hard because if anybody was familiar with season four, um, of, uh, of living world, you know, that it was, it was an ambitious <laughs> oh enterprise my God, yes. and, uh, so I just wanted to give everybody, uh, uh, and that was it. It was, um, we're very, uh, cohesive and people who used to be on the team and have gone on to other opportunities, um, usually up the ladder elsewhere, mm -hmm. consider themselves, uh, alumni of our team. We all get together and do karaoke from time to time and stuff like that when we're, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, I, the, the shirt, uh, my idea originally and Ritlock and Timey and Kate or something like that. Uh -huh. And I, Aaron Lindy, who was on our team at the time, was my comedy consultant because because he's, he's funnier than I am. And and I said, "Is that funny?" He said, "That's funny." And script and script. And I was like, "Yeah, you're right, you bastard. That is funnier." So <laughs> we went with that. Um, and definitely uh, the right choice. Everybody loves it. And, definitely yeah, the right choice. Good. Good. I mean, there's just so much yeah. comedy value there. Um, real quick, Tom. <laughs> um, I'm having a, a couple of periodic drops where I'm losing you like, okay. like for a second or two. I don't know if you have any ability to like give your internet like a little kick or anything, but if you do <laughs> like, the, like a little Fonzie. Yeah. You know, we had it, we, we had it souped up um, and it's not performing a whole lot better than it was before we did that. So I apologize if that's a, that's a always the curse persists. of internet upgrades. Yeah. I read, I, I, I did say they have to meet with Comcast recently where it's like, we'll upgrade your internet. And it's like, all right, it runs yes. worse than before. What, what did you change? Right. Get back, please. Yeah, that's ex that's exactly what we did. We cut our cable cord, um, but uh, but we said, but we want to go all in on the internet. Give us the highest speed every. Yet still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the best laid plans. We soldier on anyway, don't we? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, okay, so that's a great story about the shirt, and you just told me something about what you're about what you do and the team, and I want to I want to dig into that a little bit more, but. Sure. Before we do that, maybe what I could ask is uh, for you to tell me a little bit what, about what, what the studio narrative director position is about. What is it you do? What are the responsibilities of that role? Sure, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's a role that only really makes sense, um, you know, if you have a narrative team that is larger than like two full-time people. Okay. Um, because other, other otherwise, um, uh, you know, uh, what you need is people more on a lead level and, and stuff like that who are, you know, who are really all about the making of the thing and the doing of the thing. And certainly mm -hmm. I participate in all of that. But my, my primary uh, responsibility is um, to build a narrative team that is matrixed across 
uh, different projects. So for example, right now across our living world content, as well as our expansion that everybody knows we're working on called end of dragons. Right. And, uh, and there's some other stuff going on internally that I can't talk about. And, um, Bobby Stein and I basically, we have a staff of, I think at this point it's, um, seven, maybe six or seven, uh, full-time writers slash narrative designers. Uh, we have three editors, one of whom also does some writing and, and then there's me and the lobby. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we like, I, I like having that approach to stuff. I know that it's sort of, it's a little unusual. A lot of, uh, studios prefer a team, uh, organized matrix, um, Producers particularly really like that um, because it puts all of the power over headcount uh, into the hands of the the team director or the team pro- exec producer or, or whatever. For each individual project, that kind of idea. Yeah, yeah, and okay. I, and I get where they're coming from, but but the advantage in doing it the way that I prefer to do it is that rather than leaving people exposed if something should happen, like you know, as people are aware, we had a layoff a couple of years ago, right, mm-hmm. and and. You know, basically what came down was, I mean, we had we had three or four uh, internal projects that were, that were going and and we were told, OK, you're going to have to cut them and, and you don't have to cut specifically the people who are on them, but you have to cut at least a, a, an equivalent number of the people who are on. Right. A lot of times we people aren't even given that. I would have been told you just you're laying those people off. Right. The people who were working on those projects, the projects are cut. They're on the street. Right. And that sucks. Every all of us who have worked in this industry. We, you know, I've been in this industry for 22 ish years and I, and I've gone through three layoffs, uh, in various yeah. capacities and, yeah. and, um, and it's just awful. And, and I can tell you, um, I, I, once I was unaffected, once I was affected and once I was the person who had to make some of the decisions about who was going to get laid off and I would, uh, by far prefer the, uh, the first two to the, to yeah. the third. Um, and so this is one way of, hopefully preventing that sort of situation, right? Because as needs ramp up in one part of the company or another on one project or another, we can sort of go, okay, we need to look forward down the line six months and be ready to sort of move some resources some heads over this time. They're going to be spinning up and need more people and, Mm -hmm. and production will be ramping down over on this one, hopefully. And we can sort of figure out how to move the chess pieces around, um, in a way that all the projects, um, needs are being met uh, and everybody has enough to do that, that there's no question that it's uh, absolutely worthwhile keeping them on staff and paying them. Um, and, you know, I think it's best for the projects. It's best for uh, the, the employees themselves because it, it gives them more job stability. And then right. the third thing that it's really um, awesome for is it enables us to have a process uh, that love that that uh, leverages on behalf of all of our projects the joined combined mental capacity of all right. of our uh, folks, right? Because we you very much employ a writers' room. Yeah, we have, we have a we don't we don't want people siloed off. And I know a lot of companies I could name names who who make games sort of like ours, and that's what they do. Everybody is like, you know, the 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 expansion team is very much siloed off from the the you know quarterly uh, content team and stuff like that. Um, and to me, that makes absolutely no sense because uh, if you know how to um, get the most out of a group of writers, if you know how to create a writers' room environment that is unlike a lot of writers rooms in Hollywood that is mutually supportive and trusting and everybody's rooting for everybody's success. And everybody understands that, 
um, you know, that they're all in it together. Right. And that once you bring something into the room, it's not really so much just yours anymore, it belongs to the group. And we iterate on it as a group. Um, and it levels up the material really rapidly and it levels up the people in the room really rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have, we have other folks from other uh, disciplines who come sit in. Um, and the only rule is you have to be willing to read because we, because we're reading scripts out loud. Uh Um, and, uh, you know, so we'll have designers or, or even like cinematics or, or animators come in. Um, and they'll participate in all of that stuff. It's not a, it's not a closed room. It's an inclusive environment as long as you're willing to, to understand the rules of the room. And, and that is, you know, we're all here to support each other. We're all here to support each other's work and, and, um, and to also learn from each other and get better watching the iteration on other people's work, which I can be more objective about than I necessarily can if we're looking at my script. Right. Um, (laughs) and it's just got lots of benefits. And so, uh, it's worked really well for us. Um, uh, we it, it, it we developed it. Uh, it wasn't just my idea. The the whole team developed it over over my first year at ArenaNet, and um and it almost instantly started just yielding incredible results. And like I said, both in terms of making the material better and in terms of making the staff better. And so I th- this is why I approach what I do in the way that I do. And I was very fortunate that Michael Bryan, when he hired me, sort of gave me carte blanche to do that. He didn't tell me how to organize the or how to go about. Uh, you know, our business, he let me and Bobby figure out what the process was that we wanted to follow and what the values were that we wanted to hire by um, and what mattered to us creatively in terms of the narrative. And, um, and, and I, I will always be grateful for giving, you know, for trusting us that much and giving us that space to sort of build something that, uh, that has been somewhat unique and certainly successful. And now members of our team, like I said, you know, we've had a number of folks go off to be narrative leads or narrative directors yeah. at other places, and they're taking that process with them and that same approach to everything. That's beautiful, man. And uh, oh man, it's all—I mean, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. It really is, you know, yeah. to know that that people have gotten that much out of it and that they're spreading the word. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's like it's like little like spores flying on the wind. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly what it is. Yes, exactly. That, like the yeah. cottonwood outside right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've watched like the, the the Twitter conversation between you and some of the other devs, and it seems like there's just this great sense of fellowship, even that goes beyond. You know, even, even when you change roles, change companies, all these things. Um, yeah. And it, that that what you're describing completely fleshes out that that observation that I've had just as an yeah. outsider. That's really cool, man. Yeah. Um, no, it is. It is true, and I think that's that's a, a thing that is uh, specific to ArenaNet as well. Certainly, not all the places I've ever worked has that dynamic been true, but it is true at ArenaNet. Okay, yeah, and I also appreciate what you said about about Mo about Michael Bryan. It's so important to have the trust of leadership to be able to mm-hmm. to be able to do the things that actually work and make sense, um, yep. and to be able to have that trust go on down the line, down to the people who are doing the job, making sure that they have. Um, not just interest, like stability, um, which is, uh, I know, a, re- a very hot topic in the gaming industry. Um, For sure. But uh, mobility, too. You don't want to get stuck. Right, um, absolutely. And everybody needs new challenges and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, you know, ha- having, with that trust from leadership, you can accomplish almost anything. Mm-hmm. And without it, you're really screwed. It's very hard to accomplish anything at all. Um, you spend so much energy trying to convince someone why they should be saying yes to a thing, why they should be trusting you and your instincts and your expertise. And and the fact that there's 
15 people who've all come together and agreed this is this is the decision to make right? right instead of instead of one person you know who has succeeded very much in one area of their life and and frequently what happens is people do that and they sort of assume that they can be equally successful and know just as much about other areas that actually aren't their area mm-hmm. right um and that is a problem that we face a lot in this business i think in this industry and uh and so it's really awfully nice when uh, when you don't I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. You, you hate to be in a position where you got to fight the king instead of fighting the dragon. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because you want to, you want to serve the king well. And what you're doing basically is you're saying, Hey, this is what I think the best way that I can serve you is right. I, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in my professional opinion, um, and plus it's not just me, it's all these other folks. We've all gotten together and discussed it. And this is what makes sense to us. And, and it's, it is ironic to me. I mean, I get that, you know, if you're if you're in leadership and as a as someone who is in leadership i totally understand that point of view you know you you are also on the on the hook for a lot of stuff right i mean yeah. um you're you're accountable um or you should be anyway and and <laughs> so you know that is a, a responsibility that someone in our position needs to take seriously um but we also need to understand that we are not here i and this is another part actually i guess of my answer to your original question about what's the role of a studio narrative director it is not my job usually to write the thing it is not my job to get into our tool and implement the dialogue depths it's not like mm-hmm. that's you know i have written stuff when we've been shorthanded um for sure um and i enjoy when i get to because it's it's like a little vacation it's a lot right. easier than than most of the rest of my job right uh-huh. but but you know, I am here to empower other people and to support them and to set them up for success and give them the guidance that they need and a sort of sense of what good looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then sort of to, you know, flick them like a top and let them start spinning and do what they can really do well. Um, I'm not here to do their job for them. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are a lot of people who, no matter how high in the hierarchy they go, they sort of they still think, oh, I, I really, I want to keep getting my hands dirty. I want to get in there and be doing the detailed stuff and it. doing the work and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not, that's not your role anymore. And if yeah. it is, you need not to be in a lead or a director position. You know, yeah. you need to be in there being an IC. That's totally cool too. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but, you know, in my job right now, what I, what I love doing, you know, I've got, uh, more, <laughs> more decades of experience uh, creating different kinds of dramatic entertainment in different roles than I care to explicate. And, and I bring all of that plus 22 years in games. And so I bring all of that to bear um, in the job that I do building a team with the instincts and the knowledge and the experience that I have about what will make the strongest kind of team and what Mm -hmm. kind of people will work best in the environment that I'm trying to create. Um, And, and, imparting to them as much as I can of the stuff that I've picked up over all that time, because most of them have not been working professionally for nearly, nearly as long as I have. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Certainly not in terms of making dramatic entertainment. And so, you know, that's a big part of my value is sharing that knowledge and that experience over frankly, 40 plus years, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, with them um, and, and sharing what I've learned about, um, what kind of standards we should be holding ourselves to and okay. and what kind, what kinds of stories are important and how important it is um, to be, uh, you know, at ArenaNet, we're very fortunate. I don't, this is a chicken or egg kind of thing. I don't know exactly how it started because obviously I came in 
five years after Guild Wars 2 had, had launched, right? right or four, right. four years. But, <clears throat> but one of the things that always amazed me, I played GW2 a little bit when it came out, mm-hmm. um, but not a ton. And one of the things that has amazed me as I really immerse myself in, in the player community is how diverse and inclusive and supportive uh, the, our player community is. I mean, obviously there are toxic elements at times, any, any game community is like that, but yeah, yeah, but, but I'm, I was astonished. I have been astonished constantly at the incredible kindness and, and love and openness and inclusivity by and large that our players show. I remember early on, some people probably heard me tell this story early on when I was doing some stuff, sort of reacquainting myself with the game, um, I was playing through the Silvari personal story because I hadn't done Silvari before. And, and oh. at one point, you have to go find the, the pale tree. Mm-hmm. And and I'm like looking around for 30 minutes trying to find the pale tree. I don't uh-huh. see a tree anywhere. I'm standing right on in th- right top of the star on the map, right? Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, there's like 75 other player characters running around having uh-huh. an open world, right? So finally, I sort of lost patience and I kind of did a little wave emote. And I said, can somebody help me? I, of course, I wasn't going to tell him I worked for a <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, can somebody help me? I don't. I tried to find the pale tree, and I don't know where it is. It's like the newbiest question ever. And within ten seconds, probably six or seven people ran over to me, and were not just like, "Oh yeah, the pale tree." By the way, it's forty feet below you. You've got to drop through the hole there. Um, but uh-huh. like, they were like, they walk "Welcome." Off this <laughs> right, right. But they were like, "Welcome." Do you understand the sort of horizontal? You know how, how to set up your deck stuff, and like, l- like, let me teach you how to play the game. I yeah. can meet you again tomorrow night, and. All this stuff, and and I never experienced that. I mean, hell, I've been at Riot for a while. I've never experienced yeah. that, um, you know. And uh, not ready to welcome you. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking. I know. Talking about league. You know, the league community is. I think everyone knows less it's like a, that than it's than a competitive game. Competition is the. Heart it's a competitive game. That's right. right. It, it, it it attracts people like that, and um, and that's cool. But uh, anyway, so I've been amazed at that i've been amazed at how diverse our player base is mm-hmm. compared to some others we have a much higher percentage of women uh of people of color of folks who identify as queer in some way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and uh and they show our love they should they show their love openly to us um on the forums <clears throat> on reddit on social media and so we feel a responsibility to sh- give that love back to represent them in the game and make them see, feel seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I'm proudest of, although I, ha- I had absolutely nothing to do with it because I came in halfway through Path of Fire, but I mean, we've got more black hairstyles in Path of Fire and, and now available for, for PCs than any other game by a factor of four, I think at least, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, And that's so cool. And we have had black players, you know, get in touch with us and go, this means so much to me. Right. It means so much to me to, to have those options available, right? Yeah. And, you know, my wife is black. My daughter is mixed race. Okay. And and I know what it's like. Because I used to, yeah. like, when my daughter was six or seven, I'm, like, looking for games we can play together and stuff like that that might have faces like hers in the game. And they're not so easy That's to That's everything come by. if you're a kid, seeing someone who looks it is. like you. Yeah. It absolutely is. And, and so our player base is incredible in that way. And so I know that we, and certainly on my team, we feel the joyful obligation to respond to that not just with visual representation and cultural representation which we do our best with um but also with um representation in terms of staff so that perspectives and experiences and voices that are not the standard straight white dude Mm -hmm. kind of stuff um you know get into the game and and 
Um, and, and probably the thing I'm proudest of, and there's a lot that I'm proud of that the team has accomplished in the time that I've been there. Um, but, but probably the, if I had to pick one thing, um, it is that it is, um, the fact that I think we've hired either 12 or 14 people in the time I've been at arena over the last four plus years at this point, okay. uh, even split exactly of men and women. No, nobody identified as genderqueer openly. So I don't, so I, I don't know that we had that, but. Okay. Um, uh, uh, at least a third were people of color. Um, and, uh, at least three or four identified as queer. And, um, and that was part of why we wanted them. That was part mm. of their qualification for the job. And sometimes okay. people don't understand that when I say it and they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What is that? Quota system, blah, blah. No, no, no. Uh -huh. It's because those people Somebody like that who has an experience that's different from someone who looks like me mm -hmm. is bringing different ideas that I would not have right. for stories, for characters, for themes, right? Mm -hmm. um, we hired Novira King, who is a black Muslim woman, mm -hmm. um, and she and Julia Narden started working on Ice Brood Saga right. and, um, and, and cooked up this amazing allegory about white nationalism and um, uh, you know, all of the stuff that was going on outside yeah. during the Trump administration, but yeah. it's with char. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and it's I perfect. Probably, I would never, it's like a sci-fi yeah, fantasy dream. It's what it's good for. It's exactly what it's good for. That's what Star Trek has always been so yes. great for, right? Is, is, <laughs> yeah. And science fiction and fantasy, like you can use those things to have conversations and, and go in depth about stuff in our own world, but in a way that doesn't feel so frightening or or yeah, threatening to personal. some folks because yeah because it's 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 you know clothed in, in a slightly different look mm -hmm. and um you know i would never have had that idea i wouldn't have i'm happy to say i would never it's a great idea i wish i would have it i would never have it the mm -hmm. fact that they had it and the fact that um that novira uh you know as a lead executed on it so i think impressively um yeah you know, it's just, it's a great example of a thing that's gone on, which is we've made that effort. We've, we've tried to tell those stories. I think more often than not, we've, we've told some, we're always looking to get more diverse and to tell more stories that represent the experiences of different people. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for people to get to Cantha. Oh, I mean, um, tease me, Tom. holy cow. <laughs> holy, I, I don't want to like, who's more wound up about I, it. I if I'm more wound up about it, are you more wound up about it? I bet you, you are. Oh, I, dude, dude. And, and again, this is not cause I'm like the guy I'm, I'm so excited. I'm losing all of my, ear, my earbuds. <laughs> um, it's not like I'm the guy, you know, yeah, I've done some writing on it, but mostly I've, I've just sat back and watched. Our, our writers uh -huh. and, and the content designers and, and the, the artists and animators and cinematics folks come up with the most amazing stuff. Uh -huh. And I don't want to overhype it because I don't want, you know. Expectations. But I'm very excited. Yeah. I'm very yeah. excited. I'm very proud of everybody who's working on it. Mm -hmm. And I will say this. The thing I love maybe most about it is whatever you think it's going to be, whatever you may be expecting, especially folks who played Guild Wars 1 and played Factions. Mm -hmm. Be prepared for it not to be exactly what you're expecting. Oh, man. That's all I'll say. I love the sound of that. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the challenge, right? How do you give people a thing that they want, but not in a way that they expect it? Yeah. You so know, it also feels new. I, uh, I listened to a talk you did with some other uh, narrative folks, um, Chris Avalon and some others I don't remember, talking about how to approach sequels. Um, oh, gosh, that's from a long time ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, it, it seems like it's a similar kind of problem. Is how do you give something people that they already love iterate on it in yeah. a way that, that they that they're going to care about still without forgetting about the thing that made the first thing good, right? Yep. How do you yeah, do that? That's true. <laughs> well, and I think I suspect I don't remember exactly when that panel was, but I suspect that it was um, that I was probably mostly talking about Destroy All Humans too. Okay. Uh, as my personal experience of that, I might also have been talking about Halo Reach, but um, in so many ways, that I think game that is sounds not right. really. A, yeah, I mean that game isn't exactly a sequel; it's actually a prequel right. um, to the to the numbered Halo games, and it doesn't feature Master Chief or Cortana, so it's you know it's it's really its own thing. But mm. um, but back when I uh, when we did Destroy All Humans two, and so this is two thousand six, okay, um, two thousand seven. Um, uh, you know, social media did not exist in the way that it does now. I mean, Facebook, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Facebook was even open to the general public yet. And if and, you were and a, a college student at certain schools, you could get in. You Maybe. had it. That's right. That's right. But it was. I was just learning about it at that time. I remember. Yep. Yep. Uh, but there was no Twitter. You know, there was mm-hmm. no Insta or all of these other things that are now such a part of our lives. Yeah. No HD streaming and video so, anywhere. That's right. And and I will say those things have have helped and, and things like Reddit have helped make it a lot easier for us to put our finger quickly on the pulse of what our players are saying and mm-hmm. thinking and, and, you know, what they what they say they want, at least mm-hmm. and how they feel about a thing. And that's awesome. Um, in 2006, we didn't have that. And uh, so when we were making Destroy All Humans 2, <clears throat> um Quickly, for those who don't know, if you haven't ever played the, the franchise, Destroy Humans is basically the original pitch was it's Mars Attacks, except you play the alien. And that's a right. pretty good idea of what, I what love, it is, I, right? You, it's a cool you, pitch. Yeah. You, you, you play the alien in a flying saucer, saucer comes down to Earth uh, in the first game in the 50s, um, uh-huh. basically, to, uh, to retrieve DNA by uh, anally probing people and yanking their brain, stem, brain stems out for reasons. I won't it's good, wholesome it. stuff. Um, that's right. That's right. It's good. Good American fun. And uh, and and it's you know, it's got this these two that are called Furons, uh, Crypto and Pox. And um, and they have kind of a Crypto is a, has a sort of Jack Nicholson slash uh, Charlton Heston kind of uh, voice and uh-huh. and very much is sort of the little American id running around uh-huh. the rugged individualist breaking all the rules, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Pox is sort of like the M to his James Bond, you know, up in the, up in the mothership always, you know, convention. Right. Right. And, uh, but telling him where to go. And, um, and so first game came out and, and people were really happy with it. And that was great. Uh, THQ was happy with it. Pandemic was happy with it. THQ bought ads on the NBA finals every night. Um, uh, wow. and they did amazing. Times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, really, yeah. I mean, it's it's the sort of stuff that at the time you just didn't see very much, and, yeah. and so we were all just astonished. But so we really we were really gratified by that, and um, and so of course both THQ, you know, THQ wanted us to rush a sequel into production, and we were yeah. only going to have like I think eighteen to twenty months or something to do it, and that was okay Ooh. because we had a head start um, in a lot of ways. The team was still together, and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, we started, we actually had started talking even before the decision was made to make a sequel about what we might want to do. And I remember that the lead uh, designer and I were emailing, they were in Australia. And so, you know, in, in 2006, 2005, 2006, it wasn't like we did video stuff like this no, much. Uh, mostly, yeah, mostly it was, uh, um, and, uh, the occasional trans Pacific phone call. 
Uh-huh. And uh, we were just sort of enjoying the fact that it seemed like it was going to be a, a hit and mm-hmm. batting ideas back and forth. And he said, you know, I think we should build on the idea of, you know, of, of their relationship, Crypto and Pox being a little bit James Bond and M. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in, this, in the next game, he, they should go to the 60s and, and he should be James Bond, basically. And we can sort of send up you know, the, the, the swing and mod scene in, in London and, and San Francisco in the, in the sort of love and, and all this other stuff. And I mm-hmm. said, uh, I said, I think that sounds great. I love James Bond movies. They're lots of fun. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a very, uh, right place to go because to us, the crux of the fun of the experience was crypto and pox and their relationship. Right. Um, we have two, two marvelous voice actors in Richard Horvath and, uh, and, uh, um, grant albrecht um uh playing those roles and they were just so good and and we loved them and we thought that's what you know this is what the story what stories are about they're about and i felt very strongly about characters people love the characters right they'll follow the characters where we go so we did that we made that game and uh and there are other complicating factors that i won't go into because they're not particularly relevant to the point that i'm making but um the game came out and it didn't do badly. It sold right around the same number of copies that the first game had sold. But if you know how the video game business works, that's not how it's supposed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. You hope that you make more money on the sequel while spending less resource-wise so that your profit margin gets wider the more of them you make. Mm-hmm. And that didn't necessarily happen in a big way on Destroy All Humans 2. Um, not so much that THQ wanted to stop the series, but enough that um, it gave us, the team, a little pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that, that in late focus groups before it was released, and it was really too late to do anything about this. I remember one of the things that had come up repeatedly that people kept asking in the focus group was, where's the theremin? And if people don't know, the theremin the is, is this, thing? um, yes, yes. It's, so it's an instrument from the, from the forties, um, that to call it an instrument is almost, uh, too grand a word. It's basically two wires with electromagnetic current going through them and, and the, the instrumentalist waves their hands between them and you change the pitch on one axis and the volume on another axis and you can yeah, see yeah. the flying saucer mover from the fifties. That's the sound you associate with it. Right. And we, and we were like, why do they keep bringing up the theremin? What does that have to do with anything? Right. And what we realized, because sometimes you have to kind of, you know, like like focus groups will will speak in code that you have to break. They don't know necessarily how to articulate what the thing is they really feel, but they give you what they can. And then you have to figure out what it means. And after thinking about it, what we came to realize was that what they meant was they loved the setting of the first game, too. And they loved the whole 50s flying saucer movie Mm. shtick. And they loved the. Coming into conservative, buttoned-up Eisenhower, leave it to Beaver uh, America, and finding out all the depraved thoughts that everybody was thinking in their heads about how they were going to go shoot up and go to the go see the mystery. All of that, my my mind says Marilyn Monroe, but my body says Rock Hudson stuff, right? And <laughs> and because uh, we had a whole litter of those jokes, and and uh-huh. um, and and so it wasn't just Pox and Crypto, mm. like they loved those characters too. But there was more to it than that. And we had abandoned largely by going to the 60s some of the elements that they most loved. And part of that was because we had never really asked them before we decided what we were going to make. We didn't run it by them, Mm -hmm. right? By focus groups or anybody. And again, lack of social media, difficult to get any feedback, you know. Uh, But the lesson that I took from that, and I'm sure this is what I said in a panel, was that it's really important 
when you're making another game in a franchise, which nowadays most of us do most of the time, you right. know, original IP, at least at the, the AAA level are, are unusual. Um, and so most of us are going to be working on those things a lot. And it's important when you're deciding what the next thing is going to look like uh-huh. that you really do some, um, some considered and humble research with players to make sure you fully understand what they loved about the first thing or what they've loved about the series mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in that time we didn't, we, we didn't have access to the players in the same way. And so we didn't realize yet how vital a piece of input stuff like that could be in terms mm-hmm. of figure out how to make players, how to make something they would enjoy. Right. 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 Um, and, and, so that was what I, I took away from it. And, and I've always tried to remember that uh, ever since. And mm-hmm. it's served me pretty well. <laughs> most okay. Of the time. Okay. Now, let me, that's a, that's a great story and makes a lot of sense. Um, is it fair of me to make a mental connection between that story and um, to make a connection between End of Dragons and Guild Wars 1 Factions? Is there a theremin? of Guild Wars factions of Canada? Interesting. Is Interesting. Well, I guess we'll find out. Um, there it is. <laughs> right? I mean, um, obviously I can't uh, get very much at all into into what's going on with End of Dragons, but, but I will say, I think that, um, you know, if, if you know, and, and certainly since I was a part of the group that, that tried to figure out what we should do, you know, at least I brought that perspective to the conversation for uh-huh. sure. Um, I, I think that we are, we're aware of what Guild Wars factions players liked about it. Um, I think we're also aware in the same way that we were when we were doing Path of Fire um, mm-hmm. that it's a different world today than it was then. Should have been a different world then, but but and and that we have a more we have a sophisticated, uh, <laughs> a more evolved understanding of the idea of cultural sensitivity. And, uh, you know, um, and of our being conscious of that, very conscious, very sort of, you know, front of mind as, mm-hmm. as we went into it. Um, I think that, and again, I'm not mostly taking credit for what I'm about to say, cause I didn't come in until the middle of the production process for Path of Fire. But I think that the team, even by the time I got in had, had done a great job getting their heads on straight about how to approach Africa, right. right. Which is a continent that's a lot bigger than most people realize. Uh, like you could fit Europe and North America into Africa and still have some land left over. Um, uh, the cultures there are, are, are many and complex and diverse and, uh, and there are religious, uh, things to keep in mind as well Mm -hmm. about some of them. And, um, and, and to, to go into the idea of, we have a part of our world that is inspired by Africa and how do we do that justice? And how do we, how do we serve our, our black players, first of all, mm-hmm. adequately, so that they feel seen and represented and not like we're taking them to Epcot or some right. theme park version of that. Right. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, that was a thing I could tell when I walked in the door and start, and looked around at what was going on. I could tell that, that people had asked those questions and they were the right questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I won't be so um, arrogant as to say that, that I think we got every single thing right, but I think it was clear we were trying to. I think, I think people, anything that we slipped on, people gave us the benefit of the doubt to, to a large degree because, um, 
because it was clear we wanted to serve it respectfully and, and in the right way. And we had uh, folks in the studio, um, you know, who had Arabic heritage or whose families were in other ways, you know, of, uh, family heritage was connected to Africa or cultures um, in Africa in different ways. And, and they certainly, we, we use them constantly re as resources. Um, and, uh, and uh, they were, they were helping make the game. They were, they were making the game, but whenever we, you know, for names, if we needed another name, we turned to Heather Conover, uh -huh. um, you know, whose, whose family is connected to North Africa and, and say, you know, well, kind of character and stuff like this and and you know she was a wonderful she was a wonderful source of knowledge mm -hmm. sorts of cultural things having sure. to do with that sure. so so you know we are again i can't i can't and i can't go into anything specific but but obviously we're aware of how we feel like we succeeded with that of some ways in which we could have done better mm -hmm. um and we want to try to do better um you know this go around as we again enter that it, that could you know um, present some challenges and, and that we have responded to and and uh and it's more complicated frankly even i think in some ways and yeah. uh so that's you know I, uh, what i can say is you know we're you know the, the, the we the the way we approached path of fire we learned from that too and are using that in the way that we're approaching end of dragons gotcha, gotcha. i hope that sort of answers your question <laughs> it does well I, yeah i mean i gave you i gave you a talk I gave you. Yeah, I mean, I don't um, know. You know. The theremins. It's a good question, and, and we'll uh, find out. Like I said, I mean, yeah. I hope that there won't be one. I hope people will go, "Wow, that's everything I wanted," and yeah. then there was all this that I never knew I wanted. Right? No, I'm, but we'll find out. I'm excited as as a, a longtime Guild Wars two player. I played Guild Wars one back in college. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm excited to to get back to get back there and find out both what's what I what I what I remember and also things that are new. Both those things are important to have. Um, it's been I, 114 years, right? Just saying, right? And the mind goes wild. Well, mm -hmm. Tom, I I really um, I, so I'm I'm also connecting something else you said about um, diversity, right? Um, so I watched a talk that you gave at GDC. I don't remember how long ago it was, but you talked about the um, why it makes good business sense to care yeah. about diversity. Uh, it's yep. a great talk. Yep. People should watch it. Um, <laughs> You, special sauce is what it's called if you're looking in the vault it's about 10 years sauce. ago i think yeah yeah and um one of the, what i saw you doing in that talk was taking pains to to surface numbers that 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 painted the same picture you already instinctually felt about why diversity was worthwhile not just for moral reasons or ethical reasons but for actual business reasons and what i hear you talking about in path of fire seems to be almost like a payoff. It's like if you have that diversity of perspective on the team, you can represent the diversity of people who are wanting to engage with the material out in the world. People can see themselves, they can see their kids, they can see the people they know and love in the in the content. Um, I, I think that's uh, really wonderful. Yeah, well, and well put on your part. That's exactly, that's that's probably a better way of putting it all than I could have. It's, it's uh, that is absolutely, uh, what I believe in and what I think the value of it is. And, um, and you're right to connect those things. This has been, um, uh, that's been a drum that I've been banging for a long time because there are so many people I love who are not cis white guys. Right. And, um, you know, but who play games. Mm -hmm. And uh, you might remember if you, if you watched that, then you saw the pictures of my daughter at the time. 
yeah. playing her connect games. She was, I think six years old or seven years old. And now she's uh, 15 going on 16. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and, and it hasn't gotten enough better. Uh, I will say I, w- I you know, what has happened is, you know, I, it's funny, like on Twitter t- yesterday, today, I saw this big tweet that was going around where somebody was like put, putting out numbers about, about how big the percentage of women playing um, on PlayStation 5 is compared to how many played PlayStation 4 and 5 mm-hmm. compared to how many played uh, in the ones previous to that. And it was a, a larger percentage. And okay. my response to that, which I tweeted was, yes, I hope people people heard that when I said it nine years ago in the talk <laughs> you're talking about and, 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 sh- and put out the numbers, right? Which mm-hmm. Because if you factored in mobile gaming and casual gaming at that time, yeah. there already were more female players in the yes. world than, than males. And uh, the astonishing slowness of the industry to recognize how incredibly swiftly and completely the nature of people who play games has changed, not just the numbers, right. but, you know, we have people now, I'm old enough because when they do those memes online, you know, where people say, you know, tweet with the first game controller you had and that shows how old you are without saying how old you are, right? And yeah, for yeah, me, yeah. I'm like, Pong, what do you want me to put for Pong? I don't know. I Like, I was there when the first one came out. Little joystick. You know, there are people who, there are people who there's been a PlayStation for their whole whole lives uh-huh. um, of, of one sort or another, right? There, there are, I mean, Everybody up to the age of 55 now grew up with video games yeah. in one way or another. Yep. And that is a different world. And as we know, in terms of America, at the same time, our country has been getting browner and blacker and, uh, 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 you know, more gender and sexuality uh, uh, complex. Pluralistic. Right, yeah. Of identification. Yeah. yeah. And, and. Those, but they still play games. Where I mean, they're all still human they're beings and, and yes. Americans growing up that stuff, right? I mean, um, I, and and so I, I say I act like I don't know what the answer why that ha- ha- has not happened more. Com- you know, why the industry has been so slow to respond to that. Okay, um, but that's not true. I know what the answer is, and the answer is that those people were not not the people in positions of power making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that changes stuff. So that's why, again, as you heard me talk about earlier, part of my sense of mission is I go out and find people from underrepresented groups who have talent and vision and incredible potential that could be brought to bear in the sphere of video game, you know, making making narrative based video games. And they're not necessarily the people who are going to apply. Mm -hmm. So we have to go look for them in places where they may be. It is a truism. But some folks who are listening, I'm sure, will know this. There's a truism that uh, cis white men will see a job uh, posted with five qualifications that it asks for, five requirements. They'll say, even uh-huh. though there's nothing's ever nothing's ever a requirement. Job descriptions. That stuff. But yes, but that's what it says: requirements. Yeah. And there's five of them, and and your average cis white guy is what Novira calls um uh, uh overconfident white boys. Um, uh-huh. we'll look at that and go, Hey, I match two of those five. I am applying for this. Thing. <laughs> right. Whereas people, who, whereas people who don't fit that description, don't feel that same sense of, of confidence about yeah. it. And we'll go, Oh, well, I only match four of those five. So I, I guess I shouldn't apply because there's no way I'm ever going to get it. Right. 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 So, so we have expanded on our team, what the qualifications are. And we have abandoned some things that some folks in the industry have have long held as 
absolute requirements. I know some <laughs> very big companies with very big game franchises who, if you interview with them, you better be an a level X whatever like player of their game. Because mm. if you're not, they're not interested and you need to go away and play the game for 300 hours until you reach that level. And then you can come back and maybe they'll give you the time, right? Um, seems so dumb. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> it is dumb. People, people hiring in this business, they, care, they seem to care about, have you worked on a game just like mine? Do mm. you know my game inside and out? Right. Um, you know, stuff like this. And I'm like, I can teach that stuff. That stuff can be learned yeah. in a month. You know what I mean? There's nothing. Mm-hmm. I honestly, we hired Julian Arden, and, and she came on, and she she knew Guild Wars lore better than I did within a month. Sure. And <clears throat> she'd never worked in games before, but she had worked in interactive immersive theater, creating live immersive theater experiences oh. in non-traditional places. Okay. Which turns out to be a really good skill set for making so interesting narrative video games. Right? <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. So. So it's like it's like think about what you what you have to what you want to hire for and what you don't. I'm not uh-huh. gonna I'm not gonna waste my time prioritizing things that can be taught or learned fairly readily and easily. Right. I need to spend my effort hiring, searching for, and hiring for the things that cannot, mm-hmm. because that's a thing I'm not going to be able to supply. Bobby's not going to be able to supply. We need people to come the basic in material with. Yeah. Yeah. We we need to be able to come in with a with a a, a pretty developed sense of how to dr- write dramatic material for mm-hmm. actors who are speaking, because mm-hmm. that's a thing that Guild Wars traffics in, and and yes, you're not going to learn it. Yeah. In in a year, right? You you need to spend years building up those muscles. Um, you don't have to have worked in video games, but you have to have played a ton of video games, and you have to have thought about what it would be like as a person who creates another media mm-hmm. to take your skills and apply them to video games yeah and which most people will have done if that's you know mm-hmm. if you um, just like i did when i was yeah when i when i was right out of film school right and, and i was trying to be a screenwriter at the same time i'm playing games and i'm like the story is terrible because mm-hmm. i cared about the story but mm-hmm. it was 1997 and and stories and games were mostly terrible true um uh yeah and then our third criterion is uh good collaboration skills because uh life's too short to work with jerks so uh, <laughs> those are our three those, those are our three criteria. Those are the things that we that are non-negotiable. Everything else is negotiable. Oh. And if you are bringing a perspective of any kind, we just hired an English guy. Um, you know, if you're bringing a perspective that's different from that of everybody else on the team, that is a big point in your favor. That is, mm-hmm. you know, we we actively want that. Mm-hmm. We we find value in all those things. Absolutely, I love that. Um, yeah, the. The, the question of how to distinguish between what are the ephemera and trappings of of like um the things that pe- that are correlated with the with with the people mm-hmm. who can do the work versus the things that are actually intrinsically important and to be able to separate those out yeah uh, yeah that's a great way of putting it that's exactly right that's and exactly uh, right. it takes a really discerning eye I think to do that anywhere you go. <laughs> It does, and the other thing that always strikes me about the companies who are like, "Do you know? Do you know our game? Have you played a thousand dollars of our game?" Is it's like that's such a self-serving question. All they're saying is, "Are you ready to, you know, buff me up and make me feel really like awesome because of uh, how great you think I am?" I mean, it's not about you. Come on. Well, it's like, like it's like saying, "I can have anyone I want. Why should I? Why should I pick you?" That's exactly of... what it is. That's right. That's right. And I yeah. hate that attitude. <clears throat> I think. I hope. Anybody who's ever interviewed with us, even just for our mentorship program, I hope would say, 
that the attitude they feel from us is, hey, you might be awesome. I want to give you every possible opportunity to show me how awesome you might be. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how I feel. I want to I want to I'm all about the potential, man. Yeah. Right. I don't need you to tell me what I've done. I know what mm-hmm. I want to know what you have in you that could be of value and of use. Um, and, uh, and if you've got it, I'm going to give you every possible opportunity to show it to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. how are you going to make us more dangerous? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a good rule of thumb in, with management and hiring that, you know, if you're not hiring somebody who's better than 50% of the people in your team and better is a slippery term, but you know, who doesn't, who doesn't level your team up in that way? Mm-hmm. Why are you hiring them? Mm. Right. Because the goal should always be to be raising the level of the team. And to some degree that just happens through their own development which is awesome yeah Yeah. but but uh but you want new hires to bring that um to as as bobby likes to say not just to be a a culture fit but a culture ad you know um uh yeah um uh it's a thing we talk about a lot uh on our team we're very conscious of it that's cool can i can you indulge me can you tell me a little bit about how you and bobby work together I, i had the joy of talking to bobby a couple months ago yeah. And at, at talking to him and talking to you, like, I just, I, I, I want to know, like, what's, what's it look like for you guys to collaborate? <sighs> I wish I could hear him answer that question first. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, no, no, no. Uh, uh, I will look, um, you know, we were talking about this before we started, Bob, Bobby sign is uh, one of the great human beings. He's a, he's a, as decent, um, a human being as you will ever find. And I'm very fortunate uh, I was very fortunate on walking in the door for him to partner with him. Um, and that's what he's been since literally before I even actually started on the job. We were getting together, giving me the lay of the land, sort of identifying things that were on fire were and how we were going to putting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think from the beginning, we have, uh, you know, done a really good job of sort of, we have this, we have, we have, our values are completely aligned. So there's that. Uh, we both understand what it is we want the team to look like, uh, over time, we've both become better aligned on what good looks like in terms of what we want to make sure stands. Um, uh, I am a person who my, you know, a lot of my value, I won't say all, a lot of my value is on the creative side. Like I, as I made reference to before, the fact that I've, I've worked literally for over four decades in several different dramatic entertainment media as an actor, as a director, as a writer, even as a musician and composer, I I come to every creative project that I work on, no matter what it is and what role I'm playing on it. I bring all of that experience to it, much of which, as you might imagine, has been about, okay, I know how to do X in, in a environment. And now Mm -hmm. I need to create a thing in B environment and learn how to do why. How do I learn the things that I know? How do I put those over and use those to sort of figure out how to go about solving the challenge that is narrative in video games? Because when I came in to this industry, the word, the phrase narrative designer did not exist. There was no one for me to ask how to do my job because no one had done it yet. Yeah. And so <clears throat> That's I was so interesting. my way every day. It was crazy. Writing the first Astral Humans, teams in Australia, I'm in my, you know, my in Van Nuys. And I felt, I like to tell people, I felt like I was putting a jigsaw puzzle together with my hands in a black bag. I couldn't see the pieces, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and it was amazing. What an exciting experience that was and challenging and having to figure out, oh my God, 
this is branching and nonlinear and interactive <laughs> and I can't do some stuff that I'm used to doing in a screenplay right. in the, this context. And of course, as somebody who played games, like I quickly, you know, I quickly grasped the, the truth of that mm-hmm. um, as I would sort of come up against challenges. And then I would realize, okay, I'm just going to have to think my way out of this. I'm going to have to invent my way out of this because there's okay. nobody to ask. There's no book to turn to. And yeah, there's no authority. Um, and that. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what it's been like to one degree or another the whole time I've been games for the last 20 plus years. And and I love that about it. It's, it's the reason that I sort of stopped and committed myself fully to games because I really love that. Um, and uh, boy, I got way away from Bobby's and my partnership. But um, uh, <laughs> basically, I bring, you know, I just I bring all of that. That's when I'm in a room with our writers and even some folks from other disciplines giving them the benefit of that, not telling them what to do. It's not my job, again, to dictate choices. Right. It's, it's my right. job to illuminate their idea of what choices they sure. should be considering, sure. right? And I, Jason Vandenberg used to say that, I, that he thought my superpower is um, synthesis, which I think is, is actually mm. pretty true. I've always felt very guilty as a writer mm. because I feel like I'm, I'm not a real writer. Like I know writers who, if they don't get out of bed and write 5,000 words a day, they feel physically ill. Huh. Um, like Richard, Richard Dansky at Red Storm is a good friend of mine is, is like that. That's never been me. I'm like more like screenwriters are, which is I, I hate writing a lot of the time. I love huh. having written. There's nothing, nothing more satisfying than seeing 120 <laughs> pages of a thing sitting on your desk. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Uh, but I, but I've always, you know, I came into film school as a director. I'd been a theater director. I wanted to be a filmmaker okay. and I, and I got into screenwriting as a way of making material for myself to direct because it was mm. the mid nineties and everybody wanted to be Quentin Tarantino and Spike Lee. Sure, sure. And, uh, and, and I, I found out that I really loved screenwriting in a way that I'd never enjoyed trying to write prose fiction. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, 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 I loved the challenge of all of those things, uh, and, and figuring out once I got into games, you know, things like just tools that were that used to be in my writer's kit if I'm writing a screenplay, which simply aren't in the context of a lot of video games, right? Okay. Control. It's, it all comes down to control. Control uh-huh. over sequence, control over pacing. If I, if you're giving the player the power to make some choices about how mm-hmm. all this stuff is going to play out, you are giving by necessity, you're giving that power up and you have to figure out how to achieve the, kind, the same kinds of effects in terms of a satisfying dramatic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that, that you want to, without those things, and yeah. interestingly, small plug for my cur- over the storytelling. Yeah. yeah, small plug for my current side project. Um, uh, just because it's relevant, I'm I'm currently uh, am part of a group that's doing a virtual theater slash film slash game project called Checkoff OS, oh. um, which is a deconstruction, basically, of uh, an Anton of, of Anton Chekhov's work. Um, uh, in a in a virtual and and to some degree interactive and live environment, uh, it can be enjoyed virtually from the comfort of your own home in these pandemic times. That's why we're doing it. It's not a live theater project, although it does involve some live performers. Uh, and if you're interested in checking it out, you can go to checkoffos.art. C H E K H O V O S dot A R T. Um, uh, we are, it gets specifically into these questions because they've always been fascinating ones to me. And they were interesting to the, to the guy who conceived the piece, um, of, of when you give up, you know, uh, people are used to, used to making theater, used to making movies, used to making television. You have to give up some of the control and that's scary. Mm -hmm. And 
it's also for those of us who make games, it's super exciting and figuring out how I still make you walk away going, God, that was a great experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it touched me emotionally. It moved me. The characters, I love them. How do I do that without having as much control as I normally would? Right. Mm-hmm. So this, this is the side that's mostly my area of expertise is what I'm getting at. Yeah. More the, and, the creative juice. I heard you say the word synthesis too, which yeah, suggests yeah, to me well, that, that you're, you're like, maybe you're the guy in the room who hears all the good ideas and can find how they connect. Yes, precisely. So that's why I always feel like my dirty little secret is that I'm not really a writer. I'm a director. Uh, um, because, because uh, that is, I think Jason was very actually insightful when he said that I hadn't thought of it like that, but I am not necessarily the guy who's going to have all of the genius ideas. Mm-hmm. I will have my share occasionally, but, okay. but I am more helpful in the room <clears throat> and certainly in the role I'm in now. If I'm the guy sort of listening to the discussion and then going, hey, okay, that thing you just said, what if we take that and we pair it up with that thing you said four minutes ago and then we wrap them together and we twist it like this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I'm also constantly aware of some basic principles that are important to me creatively, a lot of which comes from my acting training, a lot of which is like Stanislavski derived, the importance of making unexpected choices, uh, the importance of subtext. Rather than rather than focusing on text and dialogue, as as Janowski right. said, uh, people don't say what they actually mean. Yes. Um, which is why if you if you read a Chekhov play, it can be really off putting because or it's like reading Pinter. It's like well, what's happening here? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> okay. Um, and then that's because all of the action and emotion and what's going on is subtext, and you, ha- you sometimes you have to. It has to be done out loud. It has to be done uh-huh. live in order for that stuff to emerge and become clear. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these principles are things that I try to sort of bring to the process and, and teach folks. And I'm crappy at uh, hardcore managerial stuff, organizational stuff. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I definitely have some some good leadership skills, but they're more the soft skill kind of things. I think okay. uh, if that's the phrase. Um, and and so Bobby, who's a terrific writer and and certainly has a great creative mind as well, and mm-hmm. is responsible, frankly, for more than probably a lot of people realize. Um, under the hood creatively um uh he though is i think a more, he's a better manager in terms of the nuts and bolts than i am he's a more um experienced manager frankly in some ways and and um he covers that side we just have a we have a really good way of sort of dividing mm-hmm. the responsibilities so that everything is getting covered uh-huh. um and and he uh he <clears throat> his ability to do that um, frees me up to be able to focus more on being in rooms where creative conversations are, are being held and, and helping to sort of facilitate those and make sure that, sure. uh, you know, that they're ma- that the, the potential of them is maximized. Um, he is entirely responsible for our mentorship program. It was his idea. What a and cool again, thing. the focus is to, fi- yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the focus is, is to find folks who are from underrepresented groups in the agent and yeah. the, um, industry and to, uh, help them um, get on a, on a level playing field in terms of trying to get into the industry, um, and it's been super successful. And we've had we've hired people out of it, other companies. We've had lots of success success with people going on to, to jobs in other companies. Mm. Um, you know, but and and part of it is as I realized that when we still had Armin Constantine, who now is the narrative director at Insomniac, okay. one of the people who left our left our group and, 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 and went on to glory like that. We, we, the three of us, he, he and Armin and Bobby were the ones who mostly did the first mentorship um, program. And at some point I like opened my eyes and went, you know what? It's interesting. It just occurred to me that all three of us are married to women of color and that's probably not 
an accident huh. um, in terms of us caring about this stuff, right? Sure. Uh, I'd never thought about it before, but but it was true. And so that doesn't mean that we have all insight into, into the experiences of people of color. It just means that we we know enough that we sh- we know we should be trying to make sure that that um, that we're aware of those things. Yeah. You know, and well, you've lived the struggles. effects in ways that others haven't. And yeah. You, I mean, you, that's, you understand the viscerality of that of that more than certainly others. you see it. Yeah, no question, no question. And and uh, you know, I mean, um, for the past six years, ever since Michael Brown, all the way up to George Floyd, and and yesterday, you know, yeah. uh, my house uh, issues of how uh, people of color are treated by police in America is a thing that I have uh, a window into that that most white guys like don't, and yeah. I recognize. Like so, I wouldn't honestly. You know. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to glamorize it or give myself any credit or anything. It's just, it, it's a fact that I have, I get to see perspectives that I wouldn't necessarily have firsthand um, yeah. access to, right? No, I, I think there's truth in what you say. Like my own, like, I think that it's, it can be very easy for us to sympathize with things that we've, ex- that are like things we've experienced in life mm-hmm. and very mm-hmm. hard to sympathize with things that are not close to what we've experienced. Um, yeah. And to assume that our experience is, is, is the norm. Right. right. I think that's a big part of the problem. We 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 well-meaning white people, white men especially, have assumed yeah. that our experience was the norm for a long time mm-hmm. when oh my god, anything but. And and once you get your eyes open to that, it's not a thing you can unsee, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And then with with that <laughs> with that knowledge comes a responsibility to mm-hmm. to to try to find a way to act in a way that 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 brings that that nudges the, the the vector of reality in the right direction. And I think so. I I'd love to hear what you're doing with the diversity initiatives. And honestly, it just sounds like um, I love how connected up all of it is. That's really great. Yeah. And, and again, people, you know, p- some people will go, well, it's just political correctness or something. And, people do and that. My response, my response to that is no, that is not mm. the case. A, first of all, you know, uh, watch Generation on HBO Max. The 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 uh, the the world is changing. Our country is changing okay. um, uh, rapidly um, in terms of people, young people coming up. And my daughter, fifteen year old, so I'm seeing it firsthand every day. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, it is a matter of. It's not a matter of of political correctness or any other stupid catchphrase like that. It is okay. a matter of recognizing. Um, and not feeling, this is the important thing, not feeling responsible for, right? It's not like, look, I'm, I'm a white guy from Atlanta whose, mm-hmm. whose families on both sides um, uh, have been in, were in North Georgia for, for you know, going back 200 years. Okay. Um, and, and on one side, I'm pretty sure probably owned slaves at some point mm-hmm. or something like that, okay? That's not my fault. I didn't do that. But I have enjoyed, you know, living in a system that was built on that mm-hmm. and, and that privileges and advantages people like me. Mm-hmm. So I could be an, un, an uncompassionate person and go, that sucks to be all right. You know, yoink. Um, <laughs> but that's not who I am. Yeah. Um, I'm a person part of why I do what I do is because I'm a person who has a heart and who feels things and has empathy and compassion and, mm-hmm. um, and, who knows and loves people who those conditions have hurt yeah. in various ways and who live under the reality 
under a reality that is different from mine when they walk out of the house every day. Right. I guess if we're talking about Brianna Taylor, even if they don't walk. Yeah. And so I have, um, I'll say it again, the way I put it before, I have a happy responsibility. I have a joyful obligation. Right. Um, to be aware of that and to do what I can to begin to make that situation right. I cannot make it right all on my own. That will never happen. Um, but, you know, uh, again, speaking as somebody from, uh, from Atlanta um, who, who wished when I was a teenager for it to start becoming what it seems to be become, what Georgia seems to be coming now, mm-hmm. watching what's going on there is the most homesick I've ever been. And I haven't lived 27 uh. years. Um, I, I, part of me so wants to go back and be a part of, of the incredible changes that are happening there because, because it's still not, it, I mean, everything's still under battle, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's a battle going on there and, and I feel both a love of the place, a desire to see it be what it could be. Yeah. And, and also uh, a responsibility to help make that happen. I can't, I can't literally do that bodily and physically there. So I'll do it from where I sit here. In yeah. my little ways, in in my work, or um, you know, in in the other small sort of uh, ways that I can hopefully have some some impact on the world. But but I I very much, and I know Bobby thinks this way too. You know, we 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 believe that we believe in taking that thought and those values with us into every part of what we do professionally as well. Um, and that's not anything anybody ever told us to do. Um, but it is something that arena net, since I've been there, at least, um, we all look at each other and we say that out loud. We say, this is, this is basically what we believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are things that matter to us and we know they matter to our players. And, um, you know, there aren't a lot of video game companies who, who are willing to sort of in a substantive way, kind of put their money where their mouth is and, and make games that, that support that worldview. Um, yeah. And, and we want to be one that does because our players expect, expect and deserve no less. Yeah. So yet the hope is right. No one's doing <laughs> right. it yet. Like the spores flying yeah. out, right? Little, little bits. And the indie world is a different thing. Obviously. And, and I know there are a jillion examples, said, but again, my, all of my experience in games has been in the AAA space. Right. Right. So that's sort of where, what I think about. Yeah. Um, and I look around and it's not yet still what I want it to be, what I wanted it to be 20 years ago. But right. um, just like, just like Georgia, it's 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 bit by bit. Maybe we're making a little progress. All right, it's Georgia Peach is coming along. <laughs> Cons, baby, peanuts. <laughs> On trivia fact: peaches are not Georgia's top crop. Peanuts, right? Are. Is, isn't aren't peaches from South Carolina? I remember that's that, right? correct. Peaches, See, peaches are the top crop in South Carolina. Yes, I lived in South Carolina for a number of years, and that's one of the trivia facts. So I picked <laughs> as well as a deep affection for the word y'all, which sure. Yeah. Took me a while as a, as a New England boy growing up, moving down there when I was a teenager. <laughs> it took me a while to accept it, but it's a beautiful word. It worms your way into your bones until it's just <laughs> like you can't get away from it. I I, I was I've. It's funny because I'm also I'm a big Atlanta Braves fan, and I've just okay. discovered Braves Twitter in the last year and a half, and and I discovered that the degree to which I code switch on Twitter, depending on whether I'm talking to my Braves fam or I'm talking to game people and movie people and stuff like that. Told like I I had no idea uh, the extent to which I change up the way that I express myself. Um, uh, I've seen some of your baseball tweets. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, there are other teams that I love, but the, but the, but the Braves are my my first childhood love. I I um I was six years old when Hank Aaron 
broke uh, Babe Ruth's uh, home run record wow. while being assaulted with hate mail and death threats every day. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that made a big impression on me. And, uh-huh. um, and so, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't go farther into it cause I could, I could wax poetic for an hour and a half about, about the Braves. But, but I will say that the, the community that Twitter has made it possible for me to find of folks Mostly in the South, but also like me, spread uh-huh. through, around the other rest of the world. I mean, there's some folks in London, some folks in in uh, there's a woman who's in Aruba. Um, uh-huh. uh, it's just a, it's a great thing. Suddenly, I've found this community that I wasn't in touch with before. Who who we all have this one love in common, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and we do. We have sort of subdivided into you know Trumpy Braves Twitter and non Trumpy Braves Twitter, oh, that's and, funny. And, and the two of those don't necessarily interact. <laughs> as much um, <laughs> i think most of the trumpy ones have unfollowed me at this point and that's probably for the best uh, i don't blame funny. them yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i i have a deep affection for the for the game too um so do, do you uh, yeah well, I, you, you, so you're probably red sox fan i grew up in western connecticut so i'm a filthy yankees fan oh okay all right all right yes that was the in, in in growing up and uh arriving to baseball in the early 90s watching it on tv mm-hmm Mm-hmm, um, my, my, mm-hmm. my choices were, were the Mets or the Yankees, and the Mets were miserable to sure. watch in those years. So. Sure, sure, yeah. And so uh, I will, I will never forget Jim Laritz, uh in in yes. uh, Game Five of the '96 World Series for yeah. hitting that uh, Mark Waller's hanging slider uh, out for a three-run home run and Beautiful completing the six-run comeback. Yeah, I will never forgive him as long as I live. <laughs> but uh, and I honestly, I like, I feel bad for Yankees fans. Because I feel like if you literally, if you don't win the World Series, it's a failure, right? Yeah. And so all the people, all the Yankees fans I know, they're miserable during the baseball season because of the possibility <laughs> that they might not win the World Series. And I just feel yeah. like, gosh, that's a terrible way to go through life. Yeah, it's actually a lot better to be like a Red Sox fan. I feel, I feel like they have much yeah. more comfortable. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they, they, they wear their wins and their losses more comfortably. Yeah. Yankees fans, it's all well, that, even if you win, you feel a little ashamed. I think. Yeah, you you live with 108 years of of you know not winning. It it it, it takes something out of yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what life's about, as Bruno Kirby said in uh, in Spinal Tap, uh, <laughs> when you've lived and lost like Frank has. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I did like I I did a tweet uh, a few months ago where I said before the baseball season got going, I said, I know that I tweet about a lot of disparate things. Like mm-hmm. I talk about games, I talk about TV and movies, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I'm a huge fan of, and I talk about politics a lot, and I talk about baseball and the Seahawks and other stuff, other sports. I, I said, do you guys should I disambiguate? Should I like create other Twitter accounts, or so that you don't have to listen? You don't have to see the tweets, you know, that you, yeah. like if you're here yeah. because I'm a Braves fan, you don't have to look at the political stuff. What'd you get back? And, and in, in the poll, literally 84% said, no, we like you. We want to hear it all. That's awesome. And, and, and I have, yeah, I have so many, I have a number of people who have said to me on Twitter. Yeah. I don't know anything about baseball, the Braves, but I really love your tweets. About them <laughs> I like when so you talk about, about it. it. That's, that's very, <laughs> yeah. that's very comforting for me to hear too. I, I have my own concerns. Cause like. <laughs> Even me, like, 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 as a creator covering video games and talking to gamers and developers, like, I talk to people from different games. And I'm like, right, is, that sure. o- is that okay for me to do? Should I just be doing one game all the time? And frankly, I'm a human being. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, we yeah. have multi- I mean, I multiple interests. We're talking about baseball. That's right. That's right. That's right. I completely agree. I think um, uh, it's, it's it, it can be nice for the viewer, um, but it's not necessarily fun for the person doing it, right? right. You, have a, you have a whole self that you'd like to give full expression to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I've, um, 
that uh, myself has become, I think it's been becoming holer in the last few few weeks. I actually just have stumbled back into baseball after taking basically like a 20 year break from it because um, wow. I moved from Connecticut down to South Carolina when I was in, in the mm-hmm. late 90s. At that time, there's no way to watch, there's no way, there's no way for me to watch games anymore. And so right, I just lost right. lost touch with the sport. I got into into gaming, and it's like, okay, this hobby's cool. I'm happy to nerd out about this too. And then um, all of a sudden, I started stumbling into YouTube videos. I think it was like an A Rod video, and I've been catching up on on baseball history over the last twenty years. You know, one <laughs> of the only ways it's really jumped out at me is for a little while, um, I was commuting into Seattle down Edgar Martinez Boulevard, and boy, yeah. that chapped my ass <laughs> because Why? I'm. Ne- I'll you never guys forget. Killed the 2001 Mariners, man. They won that, 116 games, and that you was, guys cut them off at the knees in the yeah. ALCS. <laughs> but that—that that was after I stopped watching. So that—that's not part of my oh, universe. My I'm thinking oh, of 95. I think it's—I think it's 95. Is it 95? The yeah, ALDS. Yeah, probably. Um, Edgar yes. just murdered yes. us. Edgar just murdered yep. the Yanks, and it was brutal. Yeah. Um, and Griffey was pretty new at that point too. And yeah, yeah. it was yeah. Griffey. I think it was. It might have been A Rod's like first or second year. Um, yeah, that sounds right. That big unit was still with the team, man. Yeah, that was Pretty the game. Ichiro, but yeah, that was a game where Randy Johnson came out of the bullpen on like thirty-six hours rest or something at the end. <laughs> Just plow, plow through. I oh my that. god! Anyway, oh, man. Anyway, I heard that Edgar got into the Hall of Fame. Good for him. He did. He definitely Good earned news. it. Yep. <laughs> a lot of ha- a lot of happy Seattleites for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, hey, Tom, um, it's been about an hour and a half. My bladder is calling. Can we take a couple minute break? Okay, sure. You want to yeah. come back or, or uh, how are you feeling? Oh, absolutely. No, All I'm right. good. I'm All right, good. man. I'll go, I'll go refresh my drink and uh, we'll get back to it. So I'll go top off. Be right back, folks. All right. And we're back. I'm speaking with Tom yeah. Abernathy, the Mr. Narrative Studio Narrative Director at ArenaNet, uh, formerly whacking eloquently on baseball. Um, you mentioned you wanted to say <laughs> something about some of the folks on the creative side working on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I just want we we have uh, an amazing uh, group of writers um, and and some collaborators and other ones that I that I I didn't get a chance to uh, specifically call it by name and and I just want to mention their names so if people want to follow them on Twitter or something that they can do that. Uh, our narrative lead is Quan Perng, uh, who is doing a tremendous job. Uh, his partner from the content design side is uh, Connor Fallon, um, and uh, I could I can't speak highly enough uh, about the work that the two of them has have done in, in leading the team. And uh, you guys are, I I think once once it comes out, you're you're going to have good things to say to them as well. Um, we've had marvelous writing contributions as well from Erin. Uh, uh, I won't say your last name. She's on Twitter. I don't know if she wants her last name out there, but. Um, from Aaron, from Morgan Lockhart, uh, uh, Alex Kane, some. Um, uh, I want to, from Daniel Barnes, from uh, Indigo Book, uh, Bach. I'm saying it wrong. It's Lindy now, anyway. She married Aaron. Um, uh-huh. uh, I'm trying to think, am I missing anybody who actually has written on this? But I think I think that's everyone. If, if I've left your name out, I, I apologize. But the team is, it's, it's a fairly lean team, but they've done amazing work. And all the designers, the partners on that side are, are 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 tremendous and doing amazing things, and the cinematics team, as always, is holy cow, holy cow. Yeah. Um. I I just you know, uh, our our cinematics director, um, and uh, uh Chelsea and and Jason, 
Annenberg and I a few years ago sort of all got together and kind of um, resolved to uh, change our focus on in terms of the moments that we that we pick to make into cinematics. We have to be very oh. selective because we don't have a ton of resources okay. uh, to spend on that stuff. And um, and and prior to that, most of our cinematics, like those in a lot of games, had had been chosen because it was a moment that was going to be a lot of big spectacle, you know. Right. Uh, and and sometimes you choose them because the designers are wary of whether they can really make it pay off in game right they do it in the game engine um and we just decided we felt like that was not that wasn't the right criteria set of criteria and um so we kind of had a specific we kind of honed our philosophy and said we're going to pick our spots um to be the moments that are about uh, personal relationship stuff you know uh characters and and um you know important emotional moments them because um a it's a thing that leverages what our animators are are really good at Mm -hmm. uh which is physicalizing um you know various ways um uh uh, physical performance facial performance emotion to into movement and physicality Uh which uh, we also do with the voice actors in terms of of the acting the, the voice acting um and uh but also because our game, I think at least now, I don't know if it's always this, but certainly at this point, I feel like uh, our our IP is really about people, really about characters. It's about um, their relationships to each other, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, I can I can talk more if you want about uh, sort of what has emerged as the kind of fine story. The point is just, you know, I think back to uh, a moment like um, Joko's. Uh, monologue to the commander and ram as they're they're you know frozen uh joko basically tells us what kind of a complete amoral jerk we've been for the last three God, seasons right it's so uh, oh man nolan north performing as joko is a is a, a thing of wonder to behold <laughs> yeah. let me tell you yeah. um and uh you know that's one great example the the scene where um right after blish sacrifices him, himself and Gork is overcome and leaves, and Timey yeah. and Bram are sort of coping with the fact that Blish has, Blish has died, and then also Timey to share with Bram that her uh, disease is no longer in, in remission. Right. Um, and that's a very intimate, I mean, you know, close-ups on an Asura face, a tricky thing to pull off. They've uh. got all sorts of teeth and stuff, even the cute <laughs> ones. And, and uh, I'll get you, you know, but, but they will. But but you know that was that was the thing that made sense to spend our limited cinematic resources on not not huge spectacle stuff the 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 human moments for lack of a better term I guess in in, in Guild Wars we would say the you know in yeah. real world world sense the human size moment I love that um, another moment that I that I that jumps out at me and I'm not sure if this is one of those you picked in that for that with the same criteria in mind is season four when the I am not him cutscene with Kate and Oreen. That's yes. one of my favorites. That's a great one to pick out because of the fact that unlike some of them, it has almost no dialogue, right? Right. So it is, you're actually, yeah, you're making the point I was actually, I had in my mind even better because that is a scene where all, everything that is communicated is through the physicality and, yeah. and the facial performances and the animation and um and, and while the one line of dialogue 
by Keith and, and Doreen, by Kari uh, Walgren and um, uh, 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 Nika Futterman, um, you know, it, it certainly contributes to it. Even, I think, even if, if you had the sound off and you didn't even hear it, because their mouths yeah. don't move, um, uh, or at least Doreen's doesn't. Uh, I'm not sure about Keith. Um, but regardless, does. like, like yeah. the emotion of that moment is, is in the physicality of it. It's in, it's in the way that it's visualized. And that's our cinematics folks are so brilliant. Yeah. at doing that and that is i'm i'm thinking that that's the sort of thing more i was thinking of because uh, i'm thinking about moments in end of dragons that i that can't be specific that you can't about, talk but, about yet you know yeah. yeah but that are that are that bring that same level of skill and right. care to physical performance of of non-human creatures sometimes right like that's a mm -hmm. challenge that our folks have um it's not easy to make an elder dragon express emotion uh on a face on a head that's 30 feet long. I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy when yeah, you that think sounds about hard. it. It's a, it's a real, yeah. Um, and I'm just always amazed. We have a tremendously talented team. Chelsea's team is so good. And, and our, our artists and animators on the on straight up art and, and animation side are, are amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, the degree of love they put into what they do is tremendous. And it, and it will be on the screen in, in, uh, in dragons. I can say that. There it is, folks. Head of Dragons. Okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So I was excited, but um, you know, this is this is actually part of like what I'm. This could be a whole aside, but I'll try to keep this very brief. Um, okay. I, uh, you know, um, I started playing online games in 1999 on my PC, my family PC. My parents mm -hmm. bought me Quake Three on Real Tournament and Half Life for Christmas. Good parents. Good choices. Yeah, I'm not sure if they feel good or bad about it at this point, but I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> so anyway, and that like set me off on a path, and I played World of Warcraft. Like I did, I did all the online gamer things. I played Guild Wars One. Um, when I came, um, and then, you know, uh, I grew up. I grew up too. You know, I got into the workforce. I I found someone to to love me and to love back, and uh, I got I got to a point with with gaming where I wasn't getting something about it wasn't giving me back what I needed to get out of it. I wasn't mm -hmm. sure why. And I started having conversations with people and using that as a starting point to try to figure it out. And I think, I think I'm connecting to something that you were saying before the break. Uh, a little bit there and a little bit just what you just said and what this was like for me, where something about it, um, the game as a way to connect with people mm -hmm. and how how I'm finally starting to figure out that that's what it is for me. And that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. And now every time I get to go into Guild Wars, I get to think about the stuff I talked about with, I talked with you about. I get to think about all the people you called out, all the things that they've done. I get to think about the competition I have with Bobby. I get to think about all the things I've talked to other Guild Wars streamers about and all the, you know, the, the loves, the, the highs and lows of, you know, being a hardcore gamer. And, I get to look at the world and see the people who make the world what it is, both by playing in it and by making it directly. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing, and it's one of the things I love most about games. And I imagine this is something you thought a lot about, too, as someone who has a lot of um, uh, film experience and uh, screen, screenwriting experience. It's like the uniqueness of games as narrative engines because it's inherently collaborative with the person who's playing it, but it's asynchronously co collaborative, 
right? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's and true. I don't know what kind of point I want to make here, but I'm making it <clears throat> all, all these connections that um, I'm, I'm just finding a lot of resonance with in terms of the connection, the human element. Um, and not, not human as in strictly homo sapien, I mean, the people element. Sure, sure. I love that. Um, it makes me more excited to, to understand that that focus on uh, the um, cinematics to be more about the, those moments, the people moments, as opposed to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a city exploding or, you know, whatever the thing mm -hmm. to, can be. Um, mm -hmm. That's exciting to me. And that yeah. that validates that that thing I'm starting to figure out. Um, and it also makes me think of um, some talks I've heard you give talking about uh, a, a point I've heard you make at, at our GDC talks. I don't remember which one this was about how gamers don't remember plot, but they remember characters. Yeah. Um, I wonder why that is. Can you, can you explain that one to me? Sure. Oh yeah, I absolutely can. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is, this is a, this is from a talk that, uh, and I will happily fight anyone who, who wants to about this. Um, this is from a talk right. that Richard Rouse and I did uh, at the Game Narrative Summit at GDC. Oh, God, probably, well, I was at Riot, so that means it has to have been years ago, which is amazing, um, okay. which was called Death to Three-Act Structure. Um, huh. And it was a fascinating talk because the, the point we started out is situations where the point we started out making ended up not being the, the quite the place we ended at. Like we came into it thinking, thinking we have one conclusion that we're going to draw. And then the deeper we got into the subject, the more we realized, oh, wait, we're not actually completely right. <laughs> like, <laughs> to that. Um, and it had a number of different aspects. One, as the title sort of suggests, is that it was primarily focused around, the talk was primarily focused around the idea of story structure. Okay. And uh, of what, if any, story structure is best suited for a video game purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the title Death to Three-Act Structure refers specifically to Hollywood three-act structure, which is a very specific uh, model that's been used, a template that's been used in commercial Hollywood making for decades, mm -hmm. um, where basically the, the story is broken into three acts. The first and third are roughly half the size of the second each of those is, is broken down into sequences, the first, third act, two sequences, and the second act into four. Um, and there are different things that sort of supposed to happen at certain points to nudge the story in certain directions. And, uh -huh. um, and uh, if you want to know more about that talk, because we do, uh, we do, do a, a quick sort of breakdown of yeah. how, what that is, before we then go on to destroy the idea that it has any games at all. Because at the time, you know, we were, we were, I think, I know I was dealing with a lot of producers who would walk in on Monday morning and go, oh my God, I spent the weekend reading this book, Save the Cat. Stop everything. This is going to help us make stories better from now on. And, and it, it, you know, there are way too many books like that. Not that they don't sometimes offer some stuff that can be useful, you know, to right. learn, but right. uh, for for a mind that is, that is not sufficiently already educated about the topic, mm. um, like they can seem like um, surefire formulas for success. And they uh, are not. Uh, another example of this is Hero's Journey um, based on Joseph Campbell's work, which is, which, um, you know, you still, we hear a lot of people, not game narrative people mostly, come in to talk about story. And the first thing that we'll say is, okay, let's talk about Hero's mm. And it's not that Hero's Journey is not a good way to structure a story. Star Wars famously, you know, made a, a lot of good use of it. 
Right. Um, but as Joseph Campbell himself would have said, it, he wasn't, he didn't like write it down in a prescriptive sense. Yeah. He wasn't saying this is the way all structure. He was the saying, monomyth, right? Here are some, yes, exactly. Here's some commonality about the ways cultures all over the world independently of each other sometimes mm-hmm. have have sort of generally structured their story yeah. interesting to look at the common elements right and to see the things that seem to have resonance no matter what culture you come from. yeah um and so you know it was more of a diagnostic and and uh and people just again you know um if you're not sufficiently uh informed on the subject you can make the mistake of assuming particularly if you're someone who's uh livelihood depends on predicting things will sell mm-hmm. it's very appealing to go oh here's a thing that is a surefire yeah. way of structuring a story that and if it doesn't work it's, it's the guy yeah. who, who, who whose idea it was fault not your fault right mm-hmm. <laughs> precisely yeah. um uh so anyway that was the thrust of the talk the main thrust okay. of the talk however at one point in the talk we did make use in terms of takeaway we're getting to the takeaway uh we made use of of some um some uh uh user research data that i had been fortunate enough to um be you know have eyes on microsoft done by some really great researchers there um who had wanted to uh who had wanted to uh you know they had they had come up with some metrics for kind of measuring how effective certain design choices were okay and they were really happy about that and and uh you know at microsoft studios we were using the ways of sort of different games and they wanted to do the same thing for narrative but they recognized that narrative is a lot more difficult to quantify and and to sort of parse out the influence of it's uh as anybody who's ever heard me of them minutes knows um i i think there's a great deal of understanding about what the narrative Proper understanding of what all narrative I'm not sure if it's your, your AirPods or if you can give it. A oh, check. it probably is. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, no, they're not my microphone. Over here. Oh, okay. Right. Um, uh, um, uh, I am very much, very much of the. I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that that narrative in games is about words or text. Right. Uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I can point to a game like Journey and say, look, there's a game that has no word text in it at all. Yeah. And yet. Do you feel it has a narrative context? Is there a story being told there? Absolutely, there is. Yeah. You're a protagonist, and you having an experience, right? Um, game narrative is about two things, and two things only. It is about context and meaning. Um, the uh, narrative, game narrative, is probably pro- properly understood as the way a game experience is contextualized fictionally. Uh, to make it meaning to okay. to to answer the question why am i doing this what's the point why does it matter right mm-hmm. designers are the what and the how extent we are the why people okay um because if there's no good reason for me to do do this other than oh it's fun and i mean you know that's enough for some things but it's not necessarily going to be satisfying on a deep particularly if you're someone stories and stuff mm-hmm. like that and, uh, you know, the example that I really, that I always like to use, and I apologize if anyone's heard me like they're getting old, like it's getting old, but is, you know, that, um, as a game designer, I can give you gray box experience where you're in a space and, and you've got this orb and you can bounce 
floor and you can throw it to another player and there's a circle elevated on the wall that you want to the orb through and that's fun. There's some gameplay there and I'll do that for 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if on the other hand, I, I, I give you an experience in which I say to you, okay, you're Steph Curry and it's game seven of the NBA finals mm-hmm. and you're at home and the Warriors are down by one with 0.4 seconds on the clock and you're at the free throw uh-huh. and there are 17,000 fans waving yellow towels in their ear, and, and whether you hit the next two baskets is going to determine whether yeah. you win the championship or you go to overtime or you lose the championship, right? Suddenly, this activity has meaning. Mm-hmm. It has an emotional value to me that I care about, which allows me to bond with the experience, hopefully to fall in love with the experience so that I become right. passionate about it and I want to do it over and over again. And I want to be friends, with it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, this is what we do. And... <laughs> So said all that, so I could say the user research um, uh, data that we that we um, that the that the UR folks came up with, they they had to figure out a way to ask the questions so that they could get useful information. And so one of the questions they came up with was, "Tell us the story of your favorite movie or of a movie you like a lot, sure, so, of sure. something you like a lot. Tell tell us the story of a book you like. Mm-hmm. Tell us the story of a video game." Uh-huh. And what they found was, interestingly, that uh, that generally people spent about twice as many words describing the story of a book that they liked than they did as they did um, describing the story of a game that they liked. Uh-huh. And beyond that, when they dived deeper into not just the number of words, but what it was they were actually saying, what became clear was that whereas people remembered the plot line, of movies and books very well mm-hmm. that when it came to summarizing to telling the story of a game they liked that the story they told wasn't always necessarily exactly plot the extent that the game had a plot instead uh-huh. it was a description of their own experience moving through the game right uh-huh. Uh-huh. so that may involve a cinematic or a player saying something or cortana saying something in your ear and you respond but it also may in when you had this boss fight where you where you it took you 25 times to figure out how to do it or where you where uh-huh. you first got this weapon that was the thing that made a big difference in in a battle you were going to fight you know what i mean like yeah. it was a subjective experience that each player had uniquely right and um so that it it, it became clear the researchers felt um and and i think they were correct it became clear that the proper way to sort of think of all that was that the story of the game is the user's experience, is the player's experience moving through it. The plot right. they found simply is not sticky. They can't tell you as much about the plot because they're spending too much energy doing stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. It's very intuitive, yeah. right? Which is, as you said, this is one thing that made me really happy because my instinct had been to assume that that would be the case. Uh-huh. But I didn't have any substantive, you know, evidence to back me up and now they'd come up with evidence that back backed me up of course in a video game i'm doing stuff so i'm not just sitting back and passively receiving everything and thinking about it you know no that right i am taking action and i'm participating in in the whole thing Mm -hmm. and of course yeah they're not going to remember your super clever twist necessarily you know or or 
Like, and so uh, the the conclusion they drawn they, they drew sorry they had drawn, mm-hmm. um, which again I agreed with it. It fit my instincts and my experience as well. Was that if a team uh, you know had limited resources to spend on the narrative aspect of the game, um, that those resources would be more effectively spent on NPCs. Mm-hmm. And the reason was that the thing that they did remember and talk about was characters. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, yeah. of course, as soon as I heard this, again, I went, yeah, I knew that. Thank uh. you for giving me that in hard numbers, right? Because, for example, you know, when I played Half-Life 2, I would have jumped off a cliff for Alex Vance. Oh, I was in yeah. love with that woman. I'm yeah. still in love with that woman. I've never given it up. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, she was as real to me in the moment um, the way she needed to be. Uh, and, I, and I had uh, a great desire to help her be who she wanted me to be. And, and mm-hmm. I could name you four other games on the, off the top of my head where I have experiences with, player, with, uh, other, with NPCs. And, and that was the thing players could talk at length about. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. said, don't worry about the plot so much. And let me tell you, I mean, because we were at the time, <laughs> uh, I was working on a project. Uh, I was advising several of us from the Microsoft Narrative Design Group, advising on a project with one of our first party studios okay. uh, that was that was uh, very plot heavy. Okay. Very plot. I mean, because the guy who ran the studio and and, and the design, the lead designer there, like that's what they wanted. It was a uh, with getting too. Sp- because it never got made it was you know in the vein of a kind of like a mission impossible or jason like a thriller spy, you know big spy action thing yeah okay. and and uh and boy did they like we had meetings for weeks about the plot of this thing mm. and the whole time i'm thinking to myself this is wasted energy because deborah henderson has already told me none of this is going to stick with people uh-huh. we should be talking about who the characters are and so the line that I said in the GDC talk, which immediately was like taken out of context and, and like vilified by smart alecky people on Twitter, uh-huh. was Abernathy says plot is overrated. Uh, and and suddenly I had all these people who never were professionally in any kind of storytelling getting on Twitter. Oh my God, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Plot is overrated. <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, okay, yeah, screw me. What do I know? You know, not just the the decades of experience I have doing stuff like this, but also what the best you know researchers in the business have just told me is uh-huh. what they've found uh, empirical science. Whatever, okay, you guys, you guys do what you want best, and sometimes you got um, yeah, I totally, totally. I hope that they eventually came around. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it was um, it was a really great thing to hear because. Um, what it, and, it, I, and I'll, I'll, I mean, to be fair, it was a really great thing for me to hear because that's my strength. Yeah, I, okay. I'm not the strongest plot guy in the world, and I know that. And so, if you were to say to me, "I have empirical evidence that plot is the only thing gamers care about," I would be like, "I wonder if I should think about getting into a different line of work." That is right. not my forte. Um, well, but yeah, you know, this I reinforces your an, own story of of, of well, kind of exactly. binding video game narrative. I started out as a professional actor on stage at 11. I did my first movie when I was 13. I, uh-huh. My whole life has been about people relating to each other in a dramatic context, uh-huh. you know? And, and, and so that is right in my wheel. 
in terms of what I'm good at and what I understand and what I can help other people understand better. And so it was nice. It was a really validating. Um, and it was, it was mostly funny to me that some people were so threatened by the, by that conclusion, which wasn't even the talk, but oh my God, the headlines that happened within 15 minutes. It's the oh, paper it's saying what crazy. you think on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not even on the internet, it was on GDC. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Like people are, people are tweeting from the audience and stuff, you know? Oh man. Crazy. I get that clout. One of the only times I've been controversial. <laughs> Enjoy it while last is. <laughs> Yeah. Right, right. The <laughs> notoriety. <laughs> okay. So characters are the thing. And this yeah. lines up for you. This is a strength you have. Um this happened while you were working with um over at Microsoft Studios, right? Yep. Yep. And and then I I I think I have a timeline, right? Tell me if this is right. After there, the next your next port of uh your next port was um over with Riot Games. Part of, part of call, yeah, that's right. And you, yes. so and at Microsoft, that's a game. I worked on a, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I just, I was anticipating where you were going, but finish your question. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I was just going to make the connection between man makes characters, man works on game that's all about characters. Like, wouldn't you think? Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. I don't know how much of this story I've ever told publicly and I'll, I'll keep the names out of it. Okay. Uh, because really none of the none of the principal people involved are even there anymore as much. Um, so, yeah. L- let me say this. So I have a lot of affection for Riot. I have a lot of affection for League of Legends. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I really was looking forward to it for the reason you say, because if ever there was an IP that's all about the characters, it's that. And yeah. one thing I was astonished by as soon as I got there was to see how much they had the the champion creation process down to a science. I uh-huh. mean, it didn't always work. Like sometimes you spent six months developing something that ended up not not happening. But that's but, part of the high quality bar. When it well, exactly. And when it when when they did get all the all the way through, they were each distinct and fascinating and memorable mm-hmm. in a jillion different ways. And those teams are cross disciplinary. And that was some of the most fun such work that I've ever been a part of. I had I had a great time. Um, uh, there are a lot of, I, 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 I don't, I, I was, I sounded like I was burning the, the league community earlier. I'm not players. <laughs> As you say, it's a very competitive game. I'm not yeah. a very competitive person. So in that sense, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily the best fit. I mean, look, here's, okay. here's the reality of, um, without getting too deep into the specifics okay. or throwing anybody under the bus. Um, uh, that was a moment seven years ago, eight years ago now where um where they were where riot was doing you know what ArenaNet did just a couple of years before i arrived which was mm-hmm. first starting to go oh narrative is a thing that our players care about and it's a way we might be able to make our game better if we had mm-hmm. people who maybe know something about it in the building so let's start building a narrative team and again like most studios did the first thing they did is they went do we have anybody all right hey you in qa I saw you've posted some fanfic. Can you write? You want to come do this? Okay, you in community, uh, English major, right? Even though you're 22 and just graduated from college, come, why don't you come over and join? The, you know, and don't get me wrong, fabulous people, every single one of these folks. Okay, I'm not, I'm not like amazingly talented, but young and green, and no one prepared them. Nobody, they weren't ready for what they were being asked to do. Um, uh-huh. They didn't have the skills yet, and there was nobody to show. Them. Mm-hmm. 
And so then Riot smartly went, okay, um, uh, let's hire somebody who's good at this to show them. And they did. I won't say who it was. It was somebody who, who was a big league fan and player, but, but who had achieved a great deal of success in a different medium. Okay. Who they brought over. Uh, with the mission of of improving this aspect of what they did, and also mm-hmm. look, Riot already at that point was the most popular game in the world. I remember hearing the the, the statistic, which which sounded impossible, which was at any given moment three percent of all internet traffic in the world is League of Legends games. I doubt that's still true, but it was apparently true at the time, and it's just mind blowing, right? Yeah, it's huge. And so you know, and it's in LA, it's in Santa Monica, and. And so there were Hollywood people circling the place constantly mm. wanting to, um, uh, you know, honestly wanting to, to, they were sharks who wanted to get fat off of, off of the gold mine that they, mm. sorry to mix my metaphors, but that they saw Riot and League of Legends. There were a lot of hangers on sort of functions. Sometimes mm. there were, um, you know, there were people who wanted to be involved with the idea of taking this IP and do, making movies and making Sure. stuff with it you know the multimedia and, and again yeah. eight years ago it wasn't like now where now we examples of mm-hmm. where that's happened and it's been really successful right mm-hmm. at the time it mostly had not happened it had happened to, not to any great creative success uh and 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 usually not to any economic success either no but people hadn't mostly figured out how to take a game ip and make a decent movie or tv show out of mm-hmm. time i think resident evil is maybe one of the only things i can think of that sort of made that Arguable. jump <laughs> yeah, exactly. In many senses, right? Um, and so this guy that they hired uh, hired a couple other guys, sort of like me, who were older, experienced people from games. Brought them in, mm-hmm. and then was looking for someone to be. He he was the creative director, and he was he was looking for somebody to be the narrative lead, which is the first time they would have had one of those highest uh, narrative position at the company at the time. Okay. Um, and, uh, and he and, and a woman who's one of the, the most important lead designers they had, the two of them were the ones that, that hired me. Okay. Um, uh, you know, like a lot of people I had talked to Riot several times over several years. Um, uh, that's just how they roll. And, um, and, uh, but this time, I mean, you know, these people really saw that and they wanted that they were, you know, he especially was from creative entertainment, from creative dramatic entertainment. And, and so he, he, he knew the values that he had them. Sure. That's why he wanted me there. Yep. And, and so I came in and the morning that I came in, uh, the director of another creative discipline, and I won't be any more specific than that, basically uh, in a, um, in what I can only describe as, as an empire building power grab, uh, I, I arrived that morning, having driven down from, from Seattle two days earlier and got in my apartment all set up. I arrived that morning for my first day at work, discovering that this person had had basically uh, effected a coup and had taken over the narrative department. He was not a narrative director. He was from a different discipline and had gotten the guy who had hired me, who was putatively the creative director, put in a corner on a side project. Basically, he just took over the, the team from me. Huh. And... And that was my first meeting was sitting that guy sitting down with me and telling me that he was now my new boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gosh, he, he looked forward to working with me. Okay. Um, uh, Sounds awkward. Oh, it was, well, I mean what it was ultimately spent the next year trying with some great collaborators. Um, I mm-hmm. loved that team again, even the young folks who were green, boy, did they want to learn and they were so, they are, t- some of them have gone on to many of them gone on to amazing success 
you mostly not at riot other but still they they they're tremendous uh it was great working with them um and some of the senior guys are, are some of the the best friendships that i've made in the business and mm-hmm. i still keep in touch with them and they're they're brothers of um, but we went through hell. We went through a war. And mm-hmm. and and mainly it was because um, we no longer had it's it's so important doing what I do to have the support of the person above you, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, of, of leadership for them, as I described Mo earlier, right. has done right. I mean, particularly once I'd been there a couple of months and he'd really seen me in action, he he decided that he trusted that I knew what I was doing and that I knew some stuff he didn't. And, and he sort of backed away and let me do, let me do right, it. Right. And he was right. Um, I think, I'm, I mean, almost objectively, you can look at that we've done and, and what people team and with us have to say. And I think, I think it's, it's incontrovertible that that was the right thing to do. Um, the guy who could have done that for me at, at riot was, was disempowered and no longer my boss. The moment, the morning I walked into the studio for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and so the next year was me having to hope and trust that the guy who now was my boss, who was not from my discipline, meant it when he said he was behind what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. It turned out that that was not true. And yeah. um, it, which is a shame because I learned a great deal from him. He talked a great game. I learned a great deal from him about being a manager team it's just that he didn't practice what he preached when it really came down to it yeah uh and yeah um and he was going to build his empire if he could and he would throw people under the bus as needed uh, in order to uh, make that happen he'd done it with the guy who hired me and um he did it with other people while i was there and and so we you know we all fought that good fight um i fought it for a year and and I was also there were extenuating circumstances i was i was commuting from seattle so i'd go down every monday morning fly back every Friday evening and yeah. I had a young daughter and, and I yeah. didn't like, I knew how hard it was for me. It was, but I didn't really have family. Yeah. Um, and in retrospect, you know, if I had, I might, I probably would have uh, ended it sooner, but, um, but it was a very difficult year. And, um, and, and the long story short of it is the answer to your question is ultimately I was not empowered to do it, to do that. What you talked about, I wanted to, that's what we were there to do. Our team was ready to do it. We were leveling up like crazy. We had some really great folks who knew what they were doing. And we had, we just did not have solid backing from our leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one thing that I learned from that, I mean, first being at Microsoft and then being there, I, I, you know, you'll understand it as a Yankees fan. I think <laughs> one of the reasons that I, that I took the job uh, with Microsoft in 2008, after having been at Pandemic Studios for three years, is is because um, they approached me, and Pandemic had gotten sold, and and it was easy to see how because at that time there was lots of publishers buying studios and then shutting them down, so it was easy to foresee yeah. that that was in the cards at some point. Yeah. And um, and Microsoft and a couple of other uh, companies in Seattle reached out to me, and my wife and I had always Microsoft being interested in me sort of felt like oh. You know, I've got my, I've got finally, I'm done with my my rookie contract. I get my free agent uh, opportunity, right? And I want to see right, if what my worth metaphor. is. And the and the Yankees are in. Yeah. Man. Wow. <laughs> right. Um. Uh. And who wouldn't be overjoyed to do that, Brian yeah. McCann? Damn you. Um. <laughs> I'm not bitter. Uh. 
<laughs> That's a very inside Braves Yankees. Uh, uh, those three of you out there who might understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so five years there and a year at Riot, what I learned was I don't want to be playing for the Yankees. I'm not mm. cut out for that. Um, I'm, I'm not happy dealing with everything that goes with the places that have the most heat and that have the most, you know, that people most see as an opportunity, a place where they themselves can make their fortune because, right. and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about the, so much the people at the companies as the people circling the companies. So, so yeah, right. This was a big perception. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, like, I am not big entertainment co Inc material. Mm -hmm. I am too much of an iconoclast. I'm too much of a, I have my way of seeing things and doing things. And the way you can get the most value out of me is let me do what I know how to do the way I know. Yeah. Instead of telling me, Oh, there's the cardinal way you got to confirm. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you know, um, you know, or, you know, you come to the Yankees, got to cut your beard off, got to shave your beard off, uh, you know, because the boss, yep. he doesn't like that. And, and, um, and that's not me. Got it. I'm not happy. And I'm not appreciated is the other thing. Like they want you to conform to a degree. They are not interested in what you individually bring. Yeah. At least, at least those, those experiences, that was my experience at those two places. And what I realized uh, after um, Riot was that the happiest I'd ever been was the three years I was in pandemic uh -huh. uh, and the year before it writing Destroy Humans as a contractor. And so I realized I, I, I am not suited to play the Yankees, uh, to play for the Yankees. I should be playing, you know, for the Braves. I should, I should be playing for the Padres or some, you know, smaller yeah. market team. Yeah. That that doesn't have all of the weight of that um, from everybody looking at it, mm -hmm. uh, um, and and uh, that was one reason that I was looking at a place like Arena. It took me several years to find an opportunity doing what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and when I you know when I did when Mo gave me that opportunity, I was super grateful. When he left, I told him I, for for that it was a gift, um, you know, unlike anything anybody else has ever done for me in this business and. And he put a lot of trust in me, um, and and I never took that for granted. Um, and I and I hope that I fulfilled it. I think that I did. Um, I do remember the day that that. Um, all right, so to segue a little bit into a GW two thing that you uh -huh. you may that may bring up memories for you. So okay. Path of Fire had come out, yep, and we were determined at that time to follow it up almost immediately with the first episode of season four. Right, like, we knew people weren't weren't expecting that. Yes. And we wanted to give it to him. And so, you know, Path of Fire came out and almost immediately we were, we were like, and in three weeks, here comes out episode one of season four or whatever, right? That was crazy. We, it was crazy. We had already been hard at work. And speaking only for myself, since I was so new to the company, I mean, I didn't know anything at that point about anything. Okay. And I would, boy, was I flying by the seat of my... <laughs> uh, the, way we, the way we got the first couple of episodes of, uh, of Living World season four out um, were very different from the way we ended up by the end of the season, uh -huh. uh, just by necessity. Um, there was a lot more uh, twine and duct tape and, and holding things together with glue. Um, okay. But, but here's the main thing. The main thing was that uh, that I, in in terms of, I want to be careful about about how I talk about this because I don't mean to disrespect the work of anybody who came before me. 
sure. uh, working on narrative stuff or, or, or whatever. There. And there's a lot of really good people who did. Um, but I, so when I got there and I sort of, I sort of, you know, re-immersed myself in GW2 and everything, my, my sense was that there's a lot of really wonderful elements and, and characters, mm-hmm. but that some of the characters had really never been fleshed out. They didn't like, I didn't get any sense of who they were as people. Mm-hmm. They were, they were archetypes to some degree. Right. Um, uh, and there were exceptions to that. Uh, but, uh, but it was true as an exception at that time. Uh, so, so this is pretty, it's Ritlock, I think is an exception to that. Ritlock yeah. Brimstone is a character that immediately, I mean, he was, he was already the most popular NPC in the game and, but it was easy to see why. Yep. Um, and we hadn't even hardly totally gotten into the reasons why, but I could see how, like what we could do with what had already been done there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and, and just like his experience being the reason Balthazar was able to escape in path of fire, mm-hmm. getting Sahath and his sword, his flaming sword and, and mm-hmm. busting out, um, uh, and Ritlock, you know, um, feeling some guilt about that. And, and I don't remember if that was a thing that already existed in Pathfire before I got there or not. Regardless, that's what happens in Pathfire if you play right. it now. Ritla, that happens, and Ritlock spends some time really feeling responsible for having let Balthazar, who is the, uh, the self-styled god of war, yeah. um, uh, get out and go on the loose and start start destroying people and things. Um, so Ritlock is a great they example. They have a wild card, that Balthazar. Indeed. Indeed. And then there were other characters who as I was sort of doing my audit kind of, of how players felt about different um, aspects of the story thus far and everything, there are other characters who, who players clearly liked, but really weren't happy with at the moment. Hmm. Um, uh, and in that number, I would count uh, Bram, mm-hmm. uh, who the comment that we saw all players on forums and stuff was, was he's too emo. He's whiny. Right. Um, he can't get over his mother dying, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Kaith a bit, um, uh, because I think you know the stuff with stealing the egg and like I mean, Kaith was a complicated character, but she hadn't really he hadn't figured out why or her motivation what it was about were hard to understand. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a you know it needed some work. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the other thing was Marjorie and Casimir, who uh, everybody loved uh, as a same sex couple. Um, but who, frankly, you know, when we started talking about what do we do with Marjorie and Kat, the answer was, I don't know, because I don't really know who they are. Uh And it took us a while to figure out the reason that was true was because everybody, both the players and the devs had, had always thought of Marjorie and Casimir as a couple. They hadn't Uh really spent ever spent much time thinking about them as individuals. And so one of the things we realized was if we're ever going to figure out Marjorie and Casimir, as as characters, we gotta take them individually. We gotta break them apart as a couple, not necessarily in terms of divorcing them or whatever, but we gotta think of okay. them separately as separate people, and then figure out why they work together and what it is that 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 compels them to uh-huh. to be with each other, right? Uh-huh. And that was a big thing. And and people who play Guild Wars will know that that was not a ball picked up and ran with uh, pretty much at all during season four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then coming into Ice Brood Saga, uh, Marjorie and Casimir reappear, and it seems like that we're going to do some stuff with them in Ice Brood Saga, and then a little, but mostly separate, and they kind of fall off of because our footprints 
started getting reduced in terms of what we're going to have the bandwidth to do. Uh-huh. And um, just because of some, you know, changes that were made in terms of the the size of the of the, the episodes and, and the frequency, we started putting out more frequently, and that meant they needed to be smaller and stuff like okay. that. And um, and it just like the opportunity, we never got the we needed a certain amount of runway in order to really deal with Casimir and and Marjorie yeah. adequately to begin to move them forward. And so. We make reference to it at the beginning of Icebrood Saga, but it doesn't get as developed in Icebrood Saga as yeah. we originally intended for it to. Yeah, you got That's okay. To we haven't forgot with. about it. You got other stuff. I mean, to deal you know, with. there's a lot of stuff going on. Bram and the Spirits of the Wild and all that stuff. Right. I mean, you know, all, all I'll say is we have not forgotten. Okay. Uh, and 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 believe me, we have not forgotten. So. Okay. But so, those are those. So those are three examples. Figuring of characters out who who Marjorie and Cass yeah, what, are as individuals. What do you? And then yes. why, why together? And why together? Yeah, it makes people sense love to me. them. Why? People loved them because they were, all, you know, same-sex couple poster children, and that's mm. not a good enough reason. There right. needs to be a better reason for people to love them. Right. Plus, they had two terrific actors playing them. True. All these folks did. Um, so that was the thing we wanted to do. Anyway, the point of this is to say that um, the main thing that I wanted, that I knew I wanted very quickly early in my time at arena was that i felt like the tone to that point at least pre path of fire had been uh had been more superficial than i thought was was best for the for the story and the characters and and for the players really to enjoy it i think it is fair to say uh, and I and I say that because I know people who worked on the original game who will say that who will say this now i think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that the first game uh, I'm sorry. The, the meaning the vanilla Guild Wars two, not Guild yeah. Wars one. Vanilla Guild Wars two, um, you know, was very sort of standard Tolkien inspired Northern European flavor kind of fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. With a couple of new species thrown in to make things interesting, which is cool. But you had your, you know, handsome white male lead in Logan, yeah. and uh, you know, your fiery redhead warrior. Oh yeah, you know good tropes. Like you can just oh boy. yeah, like I said, arc archetypes, right? Your uh, Dark and, Knight with Ritlock. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. I have never thought of it in that way. Actually, that's great. Hey, like that's fabulous. <laughs> totally, totally true. Totally true. Um, and uh, and I just felt I felt like they haven't been developed in the way that I'd like to see them developed as people, which 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 makes my job harder because it means I don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know who they are. If I don't know what they want and what they need and, and what the difference in those things is, which is the way that I've always approached thinking about characters since mm-hmm. I was an actor, I was taught that. Right. If I don't know that about them, if it's not clear, then I can't know what's going to be in, an interesting thing to do with them. So we've got to figure right. that out for everybody. And the ones we can't figure it out for, we're going to have to sort of sideline for a while, at least in can. So uh, going along with this notion in my head was the idea that um, the stakes did not feel sufficiently high to me. Now that may sound funny um, because I don't really mean the stakes. I mean, obviously, you know, like in Path of Fire, Balthazar could destroy the world if he becomes powerful enough, you know, and and if not, there's Krogatorix flying around somewhere and and you got that to contend with. The world is Um, a place with people in it, right? It's the character stakes. Yes, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, like, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to feel it. Mm. 
And how do you feel it? How do you make the player feel it? Character is what matter to them, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to raise the stakes and make things really matter. The number one complaint people have about video games in terms of characters, it's that dying doesn't mean anything because the player character always revives and important NPCs will always come back one way or another. And mm-hmm. death is a thing that happens over and over again. And it has no, yeah, right. It's cheap. Yeah. So Bobby and I talked about, it and we were like, death needs to mean something. Yeah. This is a bit, actually, there's a big question going in the studio at the time. How do we make death mean something? Because I think they'd gotten a lot of um, heat for the way they killed air in some ways. And, and, yeah. And they were determined not to bring her back because that would be like players are already mad that we 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 bring characters back too much too many too much right? right. So there's no way we're bringing air back, and then of course we brought her back at one point as a ghost, basically out of the mist. Yeah. But but that was a neat little. But moment, generally though. we've yeah. yeah, but generally we've stuck to that right, and yeah. we only did it because actually it became necessary. We realized for Bram to have an arc, he needed to come to 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 a better place in terms of how he felt about his mother, and the best yeah. way for that to happen for his mother to show back up and say, stop obsessing about me all the time. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did. But, but mostly, but this was, this was the thing. And this is a big thing at the studio. When I, when I came, you know, players feel like we're never serious when we kill characters off. So we, when we do that, we need to really stick to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, best way to establish that I think is to put people you care about in jeopardy and i mean real jeopardy mm-hmm. and have it not treated in any kind of superficial haha i will save you kind of way but rather have it treated as a thing that is real and that they could die how do i sell that well i sell that by having them tell you i am really afraid because this thing is real to me and i'm afraid i could die mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. you know put put most simply so Okay, Joko. Yeah. Uh, Joko was not, and I've said this elsewhere, so this is not making news. For the narrative folks, Joko was not the big ticket item for season four. Yeah. We were focused on Krakatoric. But then we had to focus on Path of Fire for a while. When we came back, a lot of work had been done, sort of not necessarily as mindful as it might have been about the talk we had about what, what, what we were going to do story-wise. And, and suddenly Joko was the big thing at the moment, right? Joko's mm-hmm. the big bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a lot there to work with. Fine. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. So if Joko's so if Joko's gonna be the big bad for a while, mm-hmm. he needs to be legitimately scary. How do we make him legitimately scary? Uh, he's going to seriously threaten someone we care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the Joker would do, for example, you know, sure. with Batman, uh, especially the Heath Leather Ledger Joker. And that was sort of the way we were trying to think of it. Okay. Um, you know, to take to take someone you care about, to take uh Rachel, right, in Dark Knight. Yep. And yep. uh and and tell Batman, you know, you got Rachel here, you got uh uh Harvey uh uh what's his name over here. Yeah. Uh, two different places you can't save them both, right? Yeah. I mean, that's how you that's how you push the buttons. Mm-hmm. And so uh, who's our most vulnerable character? Who's the person who who we love the most, who is least able to defend themselves? It's got to be Timey. Her name is Timey. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we're going to start this, and this became a template for for how we handled the first several episodes of the season. Actually, they would start out as one thing, and then and then 
bend in the middle and, and become something different, mm-hmm. which is, it was kind of on purpose because we wanted to be telling people we're, we're coming at this differently than we used to. Okay. And we want you to be prepared for that. Right. So, so if you play season four, episode one right now, the beginning of it feels fairly fun. Like there's some stuff you need to get and there's some pirates and they're kind of piratey and they're yeah, fun yeah. and there's Saeed yeah. of the slide. It's neat. And you're like putting stuff together to make the rum punch and, and right. you know, and all Let's this stuff. And it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, um, you, you get knocked, you, you come up with this crazy plan <laughs> to spring uh, Zaim, the leader of the Sun Spears, out of jail where he's being held by getting yourself arrested and thrown in jail. That's right. Uh, so that you can bust him out from the inside, I guess, right? Wallace. Um, what could go wrong? Chef's, chef's kiss. Brilliant, brilliant <laughs> plan. Um, and But it's all fun and games, and you get yourself knocked out, and you wake up in the jail, and then the next cell is Zayim, and you're like, hey, Zayim, we're here to, to bust you out. Yay, Commander. Let's go you on know? an adventure. That'll be fun. That's right. And you, the two of you are in the process of doing that. You're in the process of doing that. And then you hear your comm, which was confiscated from you in the other room. You hear, Commander, Commander, are you there? Commander, please, you've got to be there. Please, come in. Please, he's going to hurt me. Come in. And you're like, what the, right? Mm -hmm. And over the comm, you hear the Joker tell you that he has kidnapped Rachel. Yeah. And he's going to kill her. And there's not a thing you can do about it. Except the Joker's, in this case, his name is Joko and, and Rachel's name is Tiny. If I remembered right, too, isn't Joko like like killing and awakening people? Like it's not just kill that her; that is exactly it's turned her into it's, an undead. Yes. Too, it's doubly horrifying. Yep, for sure. Because and we we talked about we don't want to, people to misunderstand. This is a fridging situation. We're not going to mm-hmm. kill Timey just to motivate the hero, right? This is not that. This is someone you care who is literally the most person who is in your care, mm-hmm. who has been. Uh, taken by this madman who, yes, is literally raising people from the dead and awakening them and turning them into zombies in front of her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and terrifying the shit out of her. Mm -hmm. And it's not funny. It's scaring her to death, which is the point. He is psychologically torturing poor Timey, who used to have a bow in her hair. Uh And like, you know what I mean? Like, so the plucky little genius. You played it and you remember. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, long story short, look, you know, we save her. It's good. But yeah. when we find her, she's in Scruffy, her mech, her golem, and and she can't – Joker's made it so she can't open the, the, the hatch and the air is going out and she can't breathe. So to the final battle, we're doing bef- – we have to do before she asphyxiates, mm-hmm. right? This poor – This is some good stuff. This poor <sighs> young woman. Pretty, pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's Shakespeare, but it was serviceable. For yeah. what we wanted to do it. And and the main thing we wanted to do was say to the players, whatever you you're whatever you're used to, mm-hmm. what we're here to tell you is things are gonna get realer than they've been. It's still fantasy, it's still Guild Wars, you know, it's not Silence of the Lambs most of the time. But uh-huh. um but but we're going to we're going to put people you love in situations that have high urgency and emotional stakes mm-hmm. um, because we think that's going to make you love this even more. Right. So the morning that that episode got released, um, 
we have a wonderful thing at ArenaNet. We have I've done it since we've all been home, working from home because of the pandemic. But right. when we're in the building on on the morning of a release, mostly they they will bring in coffee carts to make to have people make fancy coffee drinks. They have a waffle bar um, uh, where some of the producers will make waffles for everybody. It's 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 a a fun, joyous occasion. Everybody's excited. And for something big like Path of Fire, there's even like a button on the wall and Mo pushed the button. And when we counted down and, and the thing went live, you know, we don't do that for, for a living world. Release. <laughs> That's fun. But, I love that. Um, yeah. But it's, but it's still, it's a very festive atmosphere, right? Right. Um, so we're all still riding high because Path of Fire came out a couple of weeks earlier, three weeks earlier. And we're yeah. excited because it's doing well. People really like it and it's yes. doing well. And yes, that was great. Um, desert, man. But, you know, like I said, I came in in the middle of that and everything was to me so anything that's good about path of fire i mostly say it, it i don't thank me thank somebody else who was brilliant and, and did yeah. it well um because i was still trying to figure out what was you know which direction was up mm-hmm. but um but it was known among the creative folks in the studio at least um that episode one of season four which is called daybreak daybreak yeah um uh that it represented a risk and I had talked to Mo about this and I'd gotten his okay. I'd, I'd said all the things I just said to you, I'd said to him, right. we want to raise the stakes. We want to signal to people that, that bad things can happen in this world because that's the only reason, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, mm-hmm. if you know Why the hero is always going, yeah, exactly. If you know the hero is always going to succeed and not be killed, then what's the point of anything, yeah, right? Out of bed. Yeah. Failure has to be a potential thing that can happen. And I mean, failure in the sense of absolute death or the world ending or something Mm -hmm. so when that episode went live uh it was you know at night at 8 30 that morning or whenever it was it Mm -hmm. was uh we were holding our breath a little yeah because i you know we didn't know how people were going to respond i was hopeful certainly that they would like what we've done Mm -hmm. um but i knew that it was different uh from what they were used to and i knew that there was a possibility that I didn't know the player base well enough yet, that I didn't know the IP well enough yet, that I had I had come in and and mm-hmm. made two big changes too early with a place that I was just getting to know, right? Missed the theremin. There you go. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so it looks like I did pick up that lesson and carry it forward. Um, and and I think so the so the episode went live and people like you know, Aurora Peachy started uh, uh, streaming it and everything and we yeah. we always have we have the streamers up on televisions around the studio we're watching all of them and, and we want to see how they react to stuff and uh-huh. how players are reacting to stuff. and you know long about halfway into the time it takes to play the episode mm-hmm. um, players started freaking out uh-huh. and thank goodness they were not freaking out because they did not like what they were seeing. They were freaking out, and I'm going to do my best. I'll, I'll, but I'll do my best to, to to paraphrase as closely as I can to actual comments I remember seeing. Okay, okay. They were freaking out because, oh my god, oh my god, Joko has Timey. Oh my god, oh my god, Joko is awakening dead people in front of Timey. He's torturing her. He's terrorizing her. Oh my god, I have to find Timey right now. How do I find Timey? I don't know how to find Timey. Where is she? Right. Yeah. And as soon as we started seeing those comments appearing on the forums and we were hearing streamers say it out loud as it was yeah. happening and experiencing it and, it, and it was clearly terrifying people in the best way, in the right way. It was making them care. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who it was. I wish I did. But I, I do remember somebody who was not on the narrative team 
I was sitting, I had just like plopped down a table by the stairs at, at one point in the lunch area. Uh. And I was just sort of, I was just sort of like, letting the fact that people didn't seem to hate it so far kind of you know i was just letting that like the relief me. wash over you yes, yes exactly I know, I know what you're and, talking about but somebody uh somebody walked past me i feel like it was a producer but i don't know and 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 said uh this must feel pretty vindicating huh uh, and i was like you know what it kind of does it kind of does it's i mean it was one of those moments where where you take a big creative risk uh-huh. and you know you're rolling the dice and you could fail huge, right? But another Konstantin Stanislavski quote that I like to, to quote is, without risk, there can be no discovery. Yeah. And I believe that in my bone. This is probably another good reason why I'm not good to work for giant entertainment conglomerate, Inc. Yeah, because they're not usually into that, right? Yeah. But I, I believe in being willing to fail because it's the only way that you really can, can, can succeed, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bobby and I had taken a big risk. I mean, that's part of why I felt fairly solid is because Bobby knew all this stuff a lot better than I did. Uh-huh. And he was like, yeah, I think this will work. I think it's the right way to go. I think people are really going to love it. Our players are going to like the whole time he was, he was yeah. saying, yes, I think these, you know, this, yeah. these instincts are the right way to go. And Bobby but Stein, who's still, been reading was, that for however many years at that point, oh, he would and, be in a like position to know. At that point, yes. He knows the yeah. players. Yeah. And I, and so I trusted him implicitly as I still do. And I'll, uh, I mean, I always would. And, and so the fact that he believed in it, that meant a lot. And, and, and I felt, fairly confident going in, but you never know. And there are a few moments um, in any creative person's life, I think, where uh, in their, in your career, where uh, you really have a moment like that, you know, you've taken a giant creative risk and you Mm -hmm. don't know if the audience is going to come along. And there's a lot writing on it because if it had not been popular with the players, I don't know that I would have been working there 48 hours later. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, but fortunately for me, uh, fortunately for us, um, uh, players really loved it. Yeah. And, uh, and that was awesome. And I, so then Bobby and I looked at each other and went, okay, this is what we're doing. This works. This is, this is making them happy. And it's also taking us to new places and, and, you know, to a, a kind of storytelling that this game has not dared to do before. And, a depth of character, a depth of stakes um, that is going to make it all more meaningful than it's ever even been. And it's going to make them love it that much, And it's going to hurt at times. Um, and that's how you yeah. do it. Um, you gotta and, be in the uh, shadow to appreciate the light. Yep. That's exactly right. And, uh, and, and fortunately uh, we have, that's mostly been the case um, in my time at arena. Now. Players have, sometimes we throw them curveballs They didn't expect. Sometimes, as with the margarine cast thing, we obviously sort of planted a thing that didn't necessarily pay off quickly as we had hoped to. And people sure. are like, what's going on with that? But mostly people don't go, well, screw you. I'm not playing your game anymore. They just go, huh? Wonder what's up with that. Right. Right. Um, and as, as Julia once said uh, at the, at the event uh, at the Moore theater, I started much ice fruit saga. She, she right. said, uh, we don't do anything by accident. <laughs> and she's right. In terms of narrative, like if, if, uh, like, you know, every choice we make is deliberate. Um, right. It's not always a thing we have complete control over. 
but we're aware of it. So if, you know, if, if there's character, like for example, okay. I don't want to get into it, but I'll just say the word Zoja. Okay. Yeah. We know. Yeah. Okay. We know. We know. You hear that? Good Wars 2 community? Tom knows. Arena knows. We know. We know. Believe me. There's not a thought you can express about that situation that we ourselves have not said to each other many, many times. Okay? It's a tough situation for lots of reasons, and we haven't figured out how to solve it yet. And when we do, Zoja. Yeah. And until then, it won't be good enough for you, and so we're not going to do it. That's the reality. You know, mm. until mm-hmm. until fairly recently, we weren't ready to do good stuff with Marjorie and Kaz. And so we didn't because we didn't want to half-ass it because they deserve better and players who love them. We had space and time to deal with Bram, yeah. first and foremost. If there's one character, aside from Maureen, uh, who has evolved the most over the last two seasons of Living World content, obviously uh-huh. it is Bram, and that was very intentional. He was the biggest problem child. He was the one people were like, I hate this character. Why is he even here? Boring, he's emo. And and we were just like, that can't, we can't let that be the last word in that, right? Right. So we spent, uh, sorry, I don't even know how many episodes, six episodes in season four. And and depending how you count all the stuff in season five in the Ice Brood Saga. We spent a bunch of episodes, um, you know, bringing Bram's arc to a place where he is now a fully realized mm-hmm. um, and uh, and he didn't even die like he thought he was going to. And we, we have to figure out what that means. Right. That is right. Um, I, I love that because I sort of like from the beginning, I was like, the great thing about about this situation is it's that thing where you you're, you're sure you're going to die. And so you accept that. Right. And you're yeah. like, I'm going to go on the Kamikaze suicide mission. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to help save the world. I will die in the process. But I'll be building my legend. It's worth it. It's this is very a worthy Norn. way for me yes. to go. Absolutely, very Norn, exactly. Yeah. And it seemed like that was the best way. Finally, Bram could be the Norn that he always wanted. Wasn't uh-huh. sure how, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And then you do that, and you don't die, even though two different prophecies seem to make it a lead cinch, lead pipe cinch that you had to. Yeah. Like, how exhilarating does that have to feel once you get sort of the you know the whole lava wolf stuff out of your system? I mean. <laughs> You know, the possibilities for that are really huge, and I love them. And uh, so that's really exciting. But that's, yeah, that, you know, long story short with Bram is we have brought him to a place where now, you know, like anything is possible. He has nothing but blue sky in front of him, and we, and we get to see what that means. Yeah, right? he's he's passed through his night. He's passed through the night. Yes. And it's the dawn for he him. He has. That's a good way of putting it. We are we are sort of mid-process that with Case, um, but uh, certainly... The evolution of what's happened with Irene has, I think, focused Kate and given given her a sense of purpose yeah. um, that she didn't necessarily have before. Um, it was wonderful, <coughs> sort of letting her and the commander play out this mom and dad thing with yeah. Irene in season four. Um, yeah, and and it it was a funny thing though because, and I've told this story before, so this isn't news either, but it's a good story. You know, we the the cinematic that you made reference to earlier. Mm-hmm. Where, um, where Irene basically asks Kate to let her brand her, yeah, and and Kate consents to that and is transformed in the way she is, and now fully can you know psychologically, uh, uh, telepathically communicate with Irene and be her voice because she can't speak. Mm-hmm. And we loved that moment. We loved the idea. We were like, Kate is going to be the yeah. And then the very next episode, uh, you know. 
Aureen comes back to life and goes, we got to go get Krokotoric, jump, get on back, and you're off like a shot to follow Krokotoric into the mist, right. and you can't take Kaith with you. <laughs> it's only a one-seater. <laughs> right? And so, literally, for that reason, we went, oh, God, that whole voice of Aureen, it's got to go. It's just got to go. Like, yeah. she can talk now when she comes to life again because she's got to be able to talk or how else sure. you can get with sure. her when you're, you know, which Joko's is really magic funny. But and I, Joko's gift was the gift of Gab. So, you know, why? <laughs> yeah. Like, it makes sense to me. The sense of humor hasn't quite manifested yet. <laughs> I'd like to see it. Um, and I'm sure Nika would love to see it. I um, hear but I mean, tell a joke. You know, That'd be a good moment. I, I, I do. I mean, she does, though. She gets in a couple right during during iceberg saga and a couple times people even sort of call it you know call it out oh look how kind of funny you know <laughs> she's being um uh so yeah i mean that's been part of arene maturing too but but yeah. i love that fact simply because i i love and i love making it public because i want it's good for people to understand that we're not magicians with the world at our fingertips that we're doing all of this under very real constraints of time and money and person power bandwidth and what's possible technologically and um and sometimes you have this grand plan and then this awesome gameplay mechanic means you have to dispense with it almost immediately for the better experience that the player is going to have playing the game and that's okay Mm -hmm. but sometimes that's the way it rolls right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and and that that's as as good a nutshell uh, describing what it's like doing narrative in video games as any I think I could come up. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. The a, a great idea overpowered by an even better idea. And how do you yeah. reconcile the two? Um, yeah. And I I gotta I mean, the say, good thing was, go ahead. No, I was just saying the good thing was that at least it gave us a direction to go with Kate that we have continued. So that was that that part worked. Yeah. Great, but, yeah. yeah. Um planting a seed for personality to bloom in the future. I, I was just going to say, though, that like I actually um, took the time uh, to go back and revisit um, all the dragon stories um, uh, a few weeks back after playing through mm-hmm. the last story released with Primordius and Jormag. Um, and had taken the, the time to experience the, uh, the last part of the season four arc with Oreen and that that whole story and the competition with Krakatork, being able to do it like like sitting there in a session, um, mm-hmm. I was so overpowered by how pow- how powerful that that arc was, and how imp- I was just so impressed at not just the the, the spectacle of the confrontation with the Elder Dragon, which, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's incredible, and it's. Part of the reason it's so incredible is because I, I I don't make games about Elder Dragons, but I think that probably making a game uh, making an Elder Dragon confrontation pay off is probably a very hard thing to do. I, it seems very Correct. hard to me. <laughs> Correct. And yeah, I loved how in episode five, after with all this trepidation, right? You have Orin's vision of the future where she she doesn't make it through, and mm-hmm. you trying to get to a point with her where there's there's a trust. And then you decide you're going to go to face uh, you're going to face him uh, face down Krakatoa in, in the Thunderhead Peaks. I love when you arrive in the peaks, and 
I don't know if narrative had any part to do with this, but the, the Zephyrite choir and the, the Orin chorus, it, yeah. it, that it's in my bones that, that whatever that, that tune is, whatever that like, um, it adds like a harmonic, like a metaphorically har a metaphorical harmonic to the experience. And yeah. then when yeah. that got brought into the actual boss music for the confrontation and it just, it just, it's so, um, it's, it's amazing. And of course, uh, Orin's death. I mean, I don't say of course, because it's huge, but you know, everyone, everyone knows about it. Like it's so, it's such an exclamation point. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm just, I was in, impressed all over again at how well done that, that comp, the Krakatoriks and was orchestrated narratively and technologically. And I heard you say that, um, I don't remember if, if you, you said this earlier in this conversation or if I heard you talk about it somewhere else, but about mm -hmm. how um, there was an effort to kind of pull out all the stops for this one to make sure that there was a satisfying arc because oh, yeah. of just not knowing where things were going to go in terms of um, the long-term content direction after that. And that was readily apparent. And it's just, uh, I don't know, uh, from, from this, this gamer, I just got to say congratulations on that. Um, because I don't often go back and revisit MMO story experiences and feel affected again. Mm -hmm. I don't see it very often. And uh, well, <clears throat> on behalf of the team that made those things, uh, thank you for all of that. That would um, is you know the sort of thing that makes that would make any of us uh, feel mushy because um, that's exactly the sort of uh, reaction that we hope for. I mean, we want to affect people. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and uh, all of those things again that you just said they weren't all just narrative choices as you noted. I mean, for example, yeah. the, the music, and I wish that I knew specifically which composer com you know did which piece so that I could credit oh, them specifically yeah, by name. Mm -hmm. I know Nick McLean Deemer uh, on on this the the stuff at the end of uh, episode five. Uh, mm -hmm. Excuse me, episode six, uh, more eternal. But other than that, I couldn't be specific. Um, but uh, our composers are astonishing. Um, for sure. I mean, all of, all of our creatives, uh, I, I never cease being amazed at their artistry and their craft and the ideas they come up with. Um, and, and yeah, it is, you know, uh, I think it's known at this point. I mean, we did, there was a swing for the fences sort of sense to, to season four because we weren't sure what was going to happen. I'll just say it. I'll put it sure. down. Sure. Um, and so we wanted if if that was sort of the end of of you know that of of, of that sort of way of doing content, then mm -hmm. we wanted it to feel complete and and you know uh, like a a real a really satisfying end point had been reached. Um, and you know there were a lot of other interesting choices that you make um, that end up landing a little different than you expect them to or stuff. I mean, you know, I, I already talked about how we hadn't really planned for the first half of season four to be mostly about Joko, but, but it sort of just turned out that way. And, yeah. and that was great um, in, in, in a number of different senses. Um, but it also just meant that we had to move through the art to three episodes it. rather than more than that. Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind um, about that those last three episodes, which are just gorgeous, um, 
in so many ways. Yeah. There's so many wonderful writers who work. Samantha, there's one, Neil, um, gosh, uh, lots of folks, lots of really good writers, uh, many of whom are no longer with us at the moment, but, um, but, but, uh, I think that, so, so first, all right. So first let's talk about all or nothing. Episode okay. Five. Yep. Because, uh, the thing about it is that, and I don't know if you felt this, you knew what was coming this time, right? Yeah. Um, it's called all or nothing. People playing it. Yeah. Well, for people playing it at the time though, of course, they knew two things. Yeah. They knew that Aureen had over and over again about how she kept seeing visions of how this was going to play out and they all ended the same way. Okay. In exactly the same position. Right. Right. And the other thing that they knew was that there was no way we're gonna let that happen. That uh that Guild Wars two is a game that doesn't mean it when you die. Um, that, uh, most of the time, uh, you succeed in the thing you're trying to do of some sort. And I remember, I love the day of streamer reaction. Um, uh, uh particularly PG is one of my go-tos because sure. she is, she's always on our wavelength story-wise. She, she's very good at picking up what we're trying to do and, and sort of anticipating where we're going and mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. calibrating her expectations to that. Sure. Um, and, and I remember her her playing the end and playing that amazing sequence where you think you've killed Krakatoa finally after a 45 minute battle in different parts of that damn cavern. Right. Then he comes back to life and are between you and they have the beam thing happen. And then you're blown backwards and it's a mix of gameplay and cinematic stuff. And it's all very chaotic. And, uh, as I've done before, I want to give full credit to Cameron Rich, who is, designer who we we thought the last two minutes of this have to be a cinematic they have to be. there's no way we can do it justice and cam came and got us out of a meeting and said i mocked it up i think we can do it in game seriously yeah and and the thing it's was this was this was this is one of our 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 principles and it was wow. even at the time is everything's better if you can play mm. that's mm. one thing video games have over right if yeah. I'm participating actively, if I'm if I'm living it, it's more impactful than if I'm. Yeah. I know some companies, some video game companies that are very successful. Disagree with. You should think I of Half Life, that kind of vibe. Always love that. Yes, which is where I got that idea from. Yes, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, There are no oh, there are no oh, cinematics in Half Life. Mm-hmm. It is seamless, and yet there are moments in it that are completely cinematic. But I'm always an active participant. Right. Yes. Paradigmatic example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the work that they do, um, I'm I'm very influenced by by them, as and as much as I admire some some that make what could fairly be described to some degree as playable movies, um, mm. I don't I I think that they're putting more effort to trying to get the medium to do things that we are not best at and not maximizing the things that we are best at uniquely. Sure. sure. Um, than I personally want. So Cam come Cam knows all that. Cam comes to us and says, "I mocked it up." I and he pulls us over, and it's, I mean, it's in terrible shape. Come on, obviously, it's like four months before you saw it. It, it was, it was, you know, roughed in and and scratch audio, and every possible thing about it was mm-hmm. temp. Mm-hmm. And it would make you cry as we watched him play it. Yeah. And and damned if he would if he wasn't right, and it was amazing and went awesome. Do it in game, make him live it, make it hurt as bad as he can. <laughs> Right. 
And so you have that marvelous sequence where, where you wake up and you're, you know, your comms are fritzed out. You can't really hear everybody. Yeah. You, you're, you're, we intentionally screw with your ability to move and walk and stuff. So you're slow and you're hobbling and, mm-hmm. and there's this growing sense of dread, the audio design yes. because you were knocked 50. You're not knocked 50 yards back from where you were and you don't know what happened. You don't know what the outcome of that huge confrontation was right. that was so literally explosive. And then you hear people weeping and you pass Zafira, I think, who is who is sort of muttering, has person. her little legacy mo- mo- moment of, uh, of sort of going, you know, post Gandalf dying. I think is, it was for me what that always looked like was, oh, was her having that moment of how did how did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah, that, this can't you know, be right. And, it wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. Time. And you yeah. see you see Bram in the in the sort of, you know, the opening to the to the big cavern. And mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, Commander could. Oh, I'm glad you're okay. And he, and you're like, um, I don't even remember what the commander said. Something, you know, Arine, how is she? I don't, I don't remember. He's just like, he doesn't really answer. And he turns around, he walks back into it, and you follow him in there, and you hear Timey crying, mm-hmm. and you see Arine, you know, uh, 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 stabbed on the brand spikes in exactly yeah. the same position that she always saw that you've seen in her visions, mm-hmm. and and I remember Peach Peachy going. Oh my God, they did it. I mean, I knew they were going to do it. They said they were going to do it over and over again, do it. And then they did it. Why was that so shocking? Right? Because we're so conditioned to expect that our heroes will somehow figure out a way to save the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so what I'll say about that vis-a-vis the first 10 minutes of episode six War (laughs) eternal is that even we were not prepared for the extent to which we had succeeded there. Mm. Um, uh, people were so affected and we had managed over five episodes to get them to buy into the idea that yeah stakes are real and people can really die mm-hmm. and we told you Irene was going to die and then she did and people were like wow that's amazing and mind you this is around the same time that like Game of Thrones is coming to its end and Avengers Endgame is coming and like, like it would have been so nice to have all of these things to learn from that we knew were trying to sort of you know bring things to an end in the same way we were but it was all happening contemporaneously so we couldn't we were we were on our own we were sailing blind we were making choices and they would work out uh-huh. and uh, if you have played War Eternal you know that 10 minutes in, uh, as you revisit the scene of Arine's death, she is still transfixed in that Pieta like pose. Um, and, uh, as you said, there are, there are choirs there singing to her rest. There are, everybody is still right. broken up and everything. And, um, and 10 minutes in basically the Joko that in her, that she ate kicks in and she starts to come back to life with a little help. And, yeah. and, and to us, this felt very natural and expected. This is a thing. Of course, that's what's going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize we'd actually waited. She was dead for real, for real, for real. And uh, they had like grieved and they had dealt with it. And they were like, they embraced it as a dark y'all thing. Y'all sold it. You know what I mean? Y'all sold it. We did. It, yeah. And and like, I mean, the boy, the team, just the, the work they did was amazing. And so people, I think, understandable, were a little bit like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Like, she, she's alive already. And to us, we were like, well, yeah, don't you just want to jump to that part and get back in the game? Yeah. And they're like, no, we would have liked to like make it happen somehow. Couldn't we have like, and we're like, oh yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, great idea. I mean, sometimes, 
sometimes you just like we, we have to think in advance right. about what we think is going to play and how it's going to play. Right. Everything is in our imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't really know. All we have to go on is, is how we feel about it. And, um, and we really do want to give our players stuff that's going to, you know, make them crazy, love the game and love yeah. the experience. And if we realized that, if we'd realized how successfully we had sold it, then I think we would have designed uh, War Eternal a little differently. And we would have given you a good first third of it with with something you you having to go and find the things somehow get the joko magic to kick back in to kind you of know. maybe there's a chance build and, the know. idea in your mind that it was possible that she could come back yes but to, yeah. to, to make to do the game thing to let you do it right yeah. like i just said yep. it's everything's better if you let the player do it right we just didn't realize how badly they'd want it. and and mm-hmm. in in retrospect that's a thing i really learned from um I think we all did, and and we understood folks who were sort of because I remember even Peach was like, yeah, okay, like the whole time leading up to Aureen reviving, she's like, they're not gonna do this, are they? Are they really gonna do it? like it's this? Not, really? And they did, and then we did it, and then she's like, yeah, okay, I liked it anyway, but I knew it was coming, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people had that. They were they were like, okay, I basically this is what's gonna happen, but I'm not gonna lie and say that I'm happy about it, you know? Right. Um, right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just. You know, like I said, it's a wild ride always. We are on, especially with Living World, we are on a plane that is flying in the air that we are constantly building as we fly. Right. And um, and and we do the best we can to anticipate how stuff is going to hit people and how they're going to perceive it and what kind of impact it's going to have. Um, and, and, you know, that is not to say that we don't make choices that are going to make people in one sense unhappy. I very much believe in that. I, mm-hmm. One story I love to tell, there's a, there's a great oral history of The Wire, the show The Wire, yeah. um, which in my opinion is is maybe the greatest uh, one-hour drama made for television ever. And, um, and in it, David Simon recounts how one of the young actors who play a young character who gets killed at some point, I don't, he doesn't say who it is, so I don't know, um, comes to but I, i'm guessing it could be the guy who played d'angelo barksdale i'm not sure mm. um anyway uh i came to him like he got the script for the for the next episode and he saw that his player died that his character rather died and so he comes to david simons the showrunner's creator's office and says dude what are you doing how can you kill me everybody loves you. i'm like everybody's favorite show and david simon said i know and that's why it has to be you because you're the one that'll hurt Right. <laughs> and and I know that sucks. I do. And having to tell, I, I, I am sure I've known Jocelyn Blue for 20 years. So I'm sure telling her, whoever had to tell her that Aaron was dying did not have a happy experience doing that. And she still gives me shit about it to this day. Um, uh, <laughs> she's still unhappy about it. And I don't blame her. Um, uh, when, when I had to tell Tommy Earl Jenkins that Blish, uh, who we'd only just introduced, was going to sacrifice himself. Um, uh, after three episodes, um, that was a hard thing to say because he is a brilliant actor and I love the character. Oh my God. I love. Yeah. Yeah. But again, really, really interesting person. Yeah. 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 Who we didn't get spend enough time with quite frankly. And, and, um, this is one area in which I'm always the, can we bring Blush back? I think we should bring Blush back. And everybody else is to me like, no, (laughs) he stays dead. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, okay, but I'm just saying, I have a perfect scenario for it in my head, which they've all heard, and so far they haven't taken me up on. Um, uh, 
<laughs> but it, you know, it, like I very much believe in in that. Like, like you know, true making making your audience truly satisfied does not mean always giving them the thing they want because they right. don't always know the thing that they really are the thing that will impact them the most strongly. Right. Um, that's where your expertise and experience comes in, and you make those choices, and you hope that it works the way that you thought it would. Mm-hmm. and 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 hopefully you succeed more times than you don't and mm-hmm. um you know i just i would love for for people to understand that aspect of our process um better so that they understand i've never been un- enough to be a part of a thing like what happened with the ending of mass effect 3 but i really i knew a lot of the fireware and my heart really went out because yeah everybody sort of treated that in this kind of george lucas screwed over my childhood kind of way yeah and and the thing is like you know, you've got to understand whenever you're thinking about choices that anybody, any creative person has made in, in, a, in a, a piece of art, a piece of creative entertainment that you're enjoying, that you're, you know, um, consuming, you have to understand they're human beings making the, the choices that seem best to them in the moment. And they're mm-hmm. not always going to be right. And mm-hmm. and they're certainly not always going to be right for everyone. Right. Yeah. So I may make you happy, but I may make somebody else off. I mean, my wife still has never seen the last few episodes of The Wire because Omar was her favorite character. And once they killed Omar, rather suddenly, mm. in a way that I thought was perfect, but she, she she was like, I'm out. I can't forgive them. I'm done. So the David Simon uh, lost a viewer. Yeah, um, interesting. I mean, you make those choices and and you hope that they land the way you want. But, but either way, what you more hope is that people don't love the choice, that they do respect and understand the place from which you were making it, right? Right. None of us makes a choice hoping to piss off the fan base. That is not how we go about our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, we make choices every day, uh, juggling a thousand different considerations of how much money and time and people thing we have to work with. And and on top of all of that, what do we think is the thing that people um, and and make them love our game more? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hopefully we succeed more often than we fail. I flatter myself to think that we have mm-hmm. been here, but, um, but I know also there've been times where we did our best and we didn't necessarily, uh, you know, for one reason or another, a fair number of years came away feeling like, eh, I don't know that I felt satisfied by that, you know? And sometimes we were able to predict it, frankly, we did the best we could. And we knew that, that there were going to be some folks who wouldn't necessarily, other times it's taken us off guard. Okay. Um, but it's part of the process. It's part of the, you know, it's part of the experience, but we're always, what I can tell people for sure. And I do is that we're always, we're doing it from, from a genuine place. Right. Um, yeah. We think it's going to work for you. And and if it doesn't, we're sorry, we did the best. And that's what you just said right there is the reason why I make time and try to figure out how to have these conversations. Um, yeah. I think like the, the, the greatest thing about video games is they're all made by people. And I think that yeah. it's not it's not always obvious to people sitting down and playing him, right? Um, yeah. It's all made it's by people point. for people, and the game is just in between, man. Um, yep. I uh, I thought a lot about that when um, when uh, I saw how the uh, the Icebird Saga, the big payoff at the end of it, came to a head with Jormag and Primordis, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think you said a, a a little bit ago about how there have been some changes to the way that the rest of that saga would be delivered um it seemed like it happened uh if i remember right around the time that end of dragons was announced um when i was talking to bobby he said to me like the way he he told me the the way he said it was uh we got a chance to work on an expansion so we needed to make some changes 
Um, and uh, it's a good way of it. yeah, and uh, it makes sense to me. Like I get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, without getting into specifics uh, too deeply, you know, I'll, I'll just you know say the obvious and, and underscore what Bobby said, which is, you know, we have a certain amount of people um, and a, and a certain amount of uh, uh, resources in general that we you know that we, plus we've all been working from home for the last 14 or 15 months, which is challenging. In its own it ways. is hard. It is hard. Especially um, for a collaborative environment, like you need for a video game. Yeah. We're, we're fortunate that we're able to do it as well as, as we are. Mm-hmm. There are enough things about what we make that, that we can do it this way, but it certainly isn't. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't even take into account, you know, the stresses and emotional sort of stuff that all of us who are dealing with this have dealt with everybody in, in the world. Yeah. Um, it's a massive tragedy. But but yeah, I mean, when we started, uh, End of Dragons was not yet a thing that was in the works. Mm-hmm. It was not a plan. Um, and uh, when it became one, obviously, uh, that that opportunity was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also that's a thing that takes you know a lot of a lot of resources. And so we had to figure out how are we do these things. How are we going to try to you know finish um, finish the Ice Fruit Saga? Uh, for people while still beginning to work on this other thing which we know is is going to be a little farther down the line but mm-hmm. which which mm-hmm. also will be a thing people will really like um and uh you know making video games just like making movies or tv shows or anything like that is like you know is a series of those kinds of choices you have to make you have you always you know unless you're james cameron basically you you always have uh to some degree limited limited re- limited mm-hmm. um uh you know limited technology um, and, uh, and you have to figure out how best to accomplish all of the creative goals that you've got. And, and when you're talking about video games, there are other goals that aren't creative too. They're, you know, commercial and, and, um, you know, how do we make sure that we're giving people enough reasons to replay content? How do we make sure that we're adequately serving them with festivals and, and raids and festivals and stuff in the gem store and, and, yep. you know, yep. all of those things, like there are lots of different parts of an MMO experience. It's not just about the actual storyline, right? Mm-hmm. The narrative context, going back to what I said a while back, the narrative context uh, permeates everything, but you know, the sort of golden path main story, um, which has become the story of Aureen basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't planned that way to begin with, but that's sort of what we settled on as the through line for everything. Yep. Uh, you know, that's, that's a focus for us and, um, but it's not the whole thing. And so yeah, we just always, you know, like you always do, you got to figure out how to make the thing you want to make with the resources you have and the time you have. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's, he's right. It's a, it's a good way to put it. We, we, you know, we, we need to change some things plans were, mm-hmm. um, and how we were planning to deploy people and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and we've done that. Um, but you know, that, that's, that's without getting too deeply into it again, you know, we had already committed for ice root saga to, mm-hmm. you know, with season four, we were lucky if we got episodes out every three months, we frequently didn't, didn't make that even mm-hmm. right. It was more mm-hmm. like every three and a half months or on a couple of occasions, every four months. Mm-hmm. And so we really, for ice root saga, we wanted to do a better job of hitting those marks and saying, okay, we're yeah. going to do it every two months and we're going to hit it. And we did. And my hats off to our production staff for make, for helping us uh, helping make helping us make that happen, um, and that of course also though necessitated obviously you got a month or more or less to work on everything, so it's going to have to be a little bit of a smaller thing. More modest. Yeah. Um, hopefully the whole thing is the same size. You're just kind of you're changing the way that you're breaking it up. Smaller. And bites. then we had some. That's right. And then we had some um, 
some new ideas, some kind of different things we wanted to do in terms of the structure of it. We wanted to have a prologue episode mm-hmm. that that was sort of a, its own segue out of uh, the events of season four into Ice Brood Saga. Yeah, uh, we knew we knew that we wanted to do the visions thing where we uh-huh. wanted to give uh-huh. you the opportunity to play as a different character than the commander and yeah. and let you and thereby let you experience like that. a lot. Oh, I thought it was great. Let you experience uh, perspectives on stuff that you hadn't been privy to the first time you played uh-huh, it, right? Uh-huh. It's sort of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead kind of approach, and I always uh-huh. love stuff like that. Um, and Quan, that was uh, one of Quan's big early kind of things that was his thing, and, and oh. he just did a marvelous, marvelous job on it. Um, and and we that was another situation where we we got to make him fall in love with the with the the warband man. Got to make yep. them fall in love with the warband because every damn one of those people is going to die. And it's got to yes. hurt when they do. I'm beginning <laughs> to see the way things work in Tom's brain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> make them love so you can make them hurt. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> well, it's, how many it's, times? I would say, how many times have I made, have we made Julie Nathanson die? I feel bad just thinking. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've heard you describe narrative. Uh, you mentioned earlier it's context and meaning. Um, and I think I think that probably, and this is my very unsophisticated outsider take, but it seems to me that people understand when the meaning that's being presented that isn't real, isn't a real reflection of the way humans make meaning socially, collaboratively. We're all storytellers mm-hmm. in some way. We, mm-hmm. what's a, the famously reductive saying about consciousness that our consciousness is just a uh, reality is a story that you're that your brain tells you about your, about yourself, right? It's the huh. the idea that we all perceive the world through our eyes and ears and our senses. Like it's not, it's fundamentally a subjective experience. Um, right, right, sure, yeah. Storytelling is our way to to check in on each other. But um, that's a great way of thinking about it. And uh, yeah, like just reflecting. Um, mm-hmm. So about the um, what you were saying about having to make the changes when End of Dragons became a priority. Um, it, it sounds a little bit almost like um, the situation you described with um, Cave uh, being the voice of Orin and then the Dragonflight. It's like you had a great idea, but then an even better right. idea came along. Yeah, and you had to find right. the right compromise. Yep. Yeah, because, you know, beca- because your resources are never, are never infinite. And, and mm-hmm. so... Um, you have to make choices and you have to decide, okay, what's going to, what's going to give the bigger payoff ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, um, what's, what's going to make the players, we have to make choices to try to give as much enjoyment to the players as we can. What do we think is the thing that's going to do that? Again, that doesn't mean we're going to always choose correctly, but we make our choices in the most informed way that we can. Yeah. Um, and with, with the very much with the players satisfaction at the core of what our goals are. And, um, and, uh, you know, uh, do the best, make the best story, make the best experience that we can, um, sort of working with those cards. And, um, you know, like I say, I think I- I'm really impressed and I'm, I'm in no way taking credit. I mean, it's, it's all I do is, is sit back and occasionally go, eh, eh, yeah, eh. right. I mean, I, <laughs> what I get to do, my, my job is building a team of amazing people and, um, then getting the joy of watching them do what they do um, mm-hmm. and just making sure that they they're set up to succeed and have everything you need to 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 be able to explore their own potential to the fullest and and do do amazing stuff. And um, they have never um, disappointed me yet. Uh, and I feel very fortunate, very lucky to 
um, to have been able to uh, put together a group of people who could accomplish something like the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. I think it is very special. I wish, I know that MMOs are famously hard to get into if you didn't go to the beginning. That's easier than it is of, of, of many mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. But it's a thing we know and we've been trying to figure something about it, and hopefully we're going to come up with some solutions. Um, but um, but for that reason, I the only thing that makes me sad is I don't think nearly played and appreciated the last two seasons of our Living World content as I wish had. Because mm-hmm. I think I think people would have loved it if they had, you know, been there and and prepared to do it. But I also know that MMOs are a big time investment. Um, you know, yeah. it's not like uh, playing Miles Morales for for ten hours and then being done with it. Um, yeah. And so you know, I get it, I get it. But I I just I couldn't be prouder of the work folks have done. It's it's all it, you know to me as a as a player and an audience member. It's incredibly moving stuff. Well, Tom, I think that's a probably a great point for us to end it on tonight <laughs> well it's been a uh, absolutely fantastic and enjoyable discussion thank you i didn't anticipate how, how, how much fun this would be um and, so I, and I do i want to say too i appreciate the thoughtfulness uh with which you sort of uh think about all of this that's not redundant um and and you know because there's nothing more gratifying to somebody who does the sorts of things that i do mm-hmm then that somebody spends as much time thinking about the work that I, that, that I and people that I work with have done as we've done thinking about the work that we're making. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's as, as high a compliment and as gratifying, um, a reward as we could possibly ever hope for. And thanks very much for that. I really appreciate it. It's a compliment. I gladly pay <laughs> gladly. Well, Tom, um, I want to give you, I usually give people a chance right at the end to promote anything. Um, Guild Wars 2 is out there. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, well, so I'll just underscore um, if you've if you've checked the pinned tweet uh, under the Guild Wars 2 Twitter account, you know that we've laid out sort of a calendar for the summer yeah. of different releases uh, that are coming. Um, one of the things we're doing is is turn um, where the seasons two, three, uh, four, and five back with new. Um, uh, achievements, new you know, new things to unlock, new mm-hmm, mm-hmm. goodies and reasons to play again, and also again. just like mm-hmm. you did. That's right, and like you did, just so you can sort of <coughs> reacquaint yourself <coughs> with stuff that ha- that happened for players subjectively. You know, in some cases, six, seven years ago, and mm-hmm. that is awesome because you know the phrase "end of dragons" is provocative. I know, yeah, and. <laughs> and I know that everybody wants to know what the hell it's about and what it means. And uh, as we have seventh, um, you know, you will find out some more stuff. Okay. And we are looking forward to that. We there 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 are plans in the works. Ruby is hard at work figuring out what that day is going to look like, and other folks on the on that team and the marketing team. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to be super exciting, and uh, it will it will be our first chance to really give folks. Uh, you know, a, a real look beyond the little teaser trailer that we uh, that we have released. Um, right. A real sense of sort of what we may be doing with all of this. We're super excited. It's it's um, super excited. Going to be going to be really fun, and can't wait for people to get their hands on it. Um, so, looking forward to July twenty seventh. We all are with bated mm. breath, and uh, um, and. Uh, also just, as I said, my, my little side project I've got going, uh, 
tobacco. I, I didn't start it. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have been asked to participate in uh, a sort of experimental project that is an attempt to fuse um, live theater performance and filmmaking and interactivity a la video games uh, in, the, in the process of deconstructing the work of Anton Chekhov uh, in, a, in a project that we call Chekhov OS. Um, uh, it features Mikhail Baruchnikov um, playing Anton Chekhov himself. Uh, it features uh, his daughter, Anna Baruchnikov, who is a regular on Dickinson. Um, and Jessica Hecht, who is a great uh, theater star and, and uh, who I first got to know on, uh, I think it was um, Desperately, Desperately, no, that, what was that show called? Suddenly Susan, I think. I Suddenly Susan sounds Sitcom right. from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, sitcom from the 90s. Um, uh, she's a marvelous actor and a bunch of other actors who you will know mm. um, uh, from, from different shows. Uh, next, um, Star Trek, uh, Deep Space Nine, you know, all Ooh. sorts of stuff. You'll recognize a lot of the faces in it. Okay. Um, and there's live performance going on each, each time we do it is a live event done through zoom. Um, and, uh, if you're interested, you can go to checkoffos.art and reserve a place. And, uh, I think the next one is actually, uh, I think they just did one actually this, ha- this evening, um, uh, that I didn't attend. I think the next one is Sunday, Sunday, uh, morning, eight o'clock Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern, because it's mostly intended for some folks who are going to be watching in Europe. So that's Got why it. it's earlier in the day. Makes sense. We have several more shows though. They're all on the, on the website. If you, if you're interested in checking it out, it is a work in progress where it's going. We're not sure, uh-huh. uh, but we've gotten a lot of attention. Um, uh, the New York times picked up what our, our zero gravity lab is doing um, with our, the, our previous production that was called uh, the state versus uh, Natasha Bettina. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to do an interesting new thing, um, at a, in a way that is, I mean, there are a few other people who are, who've been trying to do it during the pandemic, but we're doing it in a way that is more comprehensive and farther reaching and, and, and pushing the boundaries of all of, um, uh, more than anything else that I'm aware of. And, and it's awfully fun to be able to be a part of it. Um, uh, I wrote everything in the show that's, that's not anti- Words uh, are words that were written or rewritten by me, um, okay. and uh, that's my contribution to it. And bring I'm I'm the game part. I'm bring video game knowledge aspect uh, uh, to it. So um, that's the thing people can check out if they want to. Um, we're proud of it, but we're going to keep working. Who knows where it will lead in the future? Rad and uncertain sounds right up your alley, Tom. Yep, it is. It is. It's a. Uh, it's a. It's a good thing to have going on the side. I'm not usually a side project guy. Uh-huh. I like being very totally invested in my main thing. But mm-hmm. it's been nice uh, for the past few months to have this as a thing to, you know, it's been, gosh, thirty years since I had anything to do with the theater in any significant way. And yeah. So this is. It's really. It's a really fun way for me to return to my roots. Um, That's cool. And That's very cool. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. I'm lucky. Yeah. Well, we're lucky for having had a chance to sit down and talk. Thank you, Tom. Thank um, you. Thank I'm, you. I'm TV on Twitch. Deeg everywhere else. You can find me. I'm easy. Thank you again. Everyone else, have a good night. And uh, we'll see you next time. Actually, next week, I'll be interviewing X-Ringnet developer Josh Foreman. Famous for oh, Super nice. Adventure Box. Very much looking forward to that. Very creative they soul. Josh for me. I definitely yep, yep, will. Awesome. And two weeks from today, or from... I think two weeks from today. It's in two weeks. Cameron Rich is coming on. So Excellent. I'll be able to follow so up where we picked up. You can talk to him up. about, uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. 
That's awesome. I can't. That's awesome. I want to watch that. I want to hear his version of all of that. Um, but uh, he's a tremendously talented guy. And, yeah. and the, the guts that it took for him to come to us and say, I believe I can do this. I've mocked it up. Come look. You know, I mean, it was a real, I had mad respect. Also, he kills a karaoke. I just have. Oh, seriously? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I love me some karaoke. That's great. Well, I'm super yeah. excited about that. Um, that's cool. going to be awesome. Uh, thanks again, Tom. And you have yourself yeah, a great night. Pleasure. Thanks, you everyone. too. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for anyone who hung in. <laughs> Definitely. Three and a half hours. Absolutely.